2: Chapter twenty five of Little Women. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter twenty five the first wedding. The june roses over the porch were awake bright and early on that morning, rejoicing with all their hearts in the cloudless sunshine, like friendly little neighbors as they were. Quite flushed with excitement were their ruddy faces as they swung in the wind whispering to one another what they had seen, for some peeped in at the dining-room windows where the feast was spread, some climbed up to nod and smile at the sisters as they dressed the bride, others waved a welcome to those who came and went on various errands in garden, porch, and hall, and all from the rosiest full-blown flower to the palest baby bud, offered their tribute of beauty and fragrance to the gentle mistress who had loved and tended them so long meg looked very like a rose herself for all that was best and sweetest in heart and soul seemed to bloom into her face that day making it fair and tender with a charm more beautiful than beauty neither silk lace nor orange flowers would she have
3: i don't want a fashionable wedding but only those about me whom i love and to them i wish to look and be my familiar self
2: so she made her wedding gown herself sewing into it the tender hopes and innocent romances of a girlish heart her sisters braided up her pretty hair and the only ornaments she wore were the lilies of the valley which her john liked best of all the flowers that grew
4: you do look just like our own dear meg only so very sweet and lovely that i should hug you if it wouldn't crumple your dress cried amy
2: surveying her with delight when all was done
3: then i am satisfied But please hug and kiss me, everyone, and don't mind my dress. I want a great many crumples of this sort put into it today."
2: And Meg opened her arms to her sisters, who clung about her with April faces for a minute, feeling that the new love had not changed the old.
3: Now I'm going to tie John's cravat for him and then to stay a few minutes with father quietly in the study.
2: And Meg ran down to perform these little ceremonies and then to follow her mother wherever she went conscious that in spite of the smiles on the motherly face there was a secret sorrow hid in the motherly heart at the flight of the first bird from the nest. As the younger girls stand together, giving the last touches to their simple toilet, it may be a good time to tell you of a few changes which three years have wrought in their appearance, for all are looking their best just now. Jo's angles are much softened. She has learned to carry herself with ease, if not grace. The curly crop has lengthened into a thick coil more becoming to the small head atop of the tall figure. There is a fresh color in her brown cheeks, a soft shine in her eyes, and only gentle words fall from her sharp tongue to-day. Beth has grown slender, pale, and more quiet than ever. The beautiful kind eyes are larger, and in them lies an expression that saddens one, although it is not sad itself. It is the shadow of pain. Which touches the young face with such pathetic patience, but Beth seldom complains and always speaks hopefully of being better soon. Amy is with truth considered the flower of the family, for at sixteen she has the air and bearing of a full-grown woman, not beautiful, but possessed of that indescribable charm called grace. One saw it in the lines of her figure, the make and motion of her hands, the flow of her dress, the droop of her hair, unconscious yet harmonious, and as attractive to many as beauty itself. Amy's nose still afflicted her, for it never would grow Grecian. So did her mouth, being too wide and having a decided chin. These offending features gave character to her whole face, but she never could see it, and consoled herself with her wonderfully fair complexion, keen blue eyes, and curls more golden and abundant than ever. All three wore suits of thin silver-gray their best gowns for the summer with blush roses in hair and bosom and all three looked just what they were fresh-faced happy-hearted girls pausing a moment in their busy lives to read with wistful eyes the sweetest chapter in the romance of womanhood. There were to be no ceremonious performances everything was to be as natural and homelike as possible so when aunt March arrived, she was scandalized to see the bride come running to welcome and lead her in to find the bridegroom fastening up a garland that had fallen down and to catch a glimpse of the paternal minister marching upstairs with a grave countenance and a wine-bottle under each arm upon my
5: word here's a state of things
2: cried the old lady taking the seat of honor prepared for her and settling the folds of her lavender moire with a great rustle you oughtn't to be seen
5: till the last minute child
3: I'm not a show, auntie, and no one is coming to stare at me to criticize my dress or count the cost of my luncheon. I'm too happy to care what anyone says or thinks, and I'm going to have my little wedding just as I like it. John, dear, here's your hammer."
2: And away went Meg to help that man in his highly improper employment. Mr. Brooke didn't even say thank you, but as he stooped for the unromantic tool he kissed his little bride behind the folding door with a look that made aunt march whisk out her pocket-handkerchief with a sudden dew in her sharp old eyes a crash a cry and a laugh from laurie accompanied by the indecorous exclamation jupiter ammon joe's upset the cake again caused a momentary flurry which was hardly over when a flock of cousins arrived and the party came in as beth used to say when a child
5: don't let that young giant come near me he worries me worse than mosquitoes
2: whispered the old lady to Amy, as the rooms filled and Laurie's black head towered above the rest. "'He has promised to be
4: very good to-day, and he can be perfectly elegant if he likes,'
2: returned Amy, and gliding away to warn Hercules to beware of the dragon, which warning caused him to haunt the old lady with a devotion that nearly distracted her. There was no bridal procession, but a sudden silence fell upon the room as Mr. March and the young couple took their places under the green arch mother and sisters gathered close, as if loath to give Meg up. The fatherly voice broke more than once, which only seemed to make the service more beautiful and solemn. The bridegroom's hand trembled visibly, and no one heard his replies. But Meg looked straight up in her husband's eyes and said, "'I will,' with such tender trust in her own face and voice, that her mother's heart rejoiced, and Aunt March sniffed audibly. Joe did not cry though she was very near at once, and was only saved from a demonstration by the consciousness that Laurie was staring fixedly at her, with a comical mixture of merriment and emotion in his wicked black eyes. Beth kept her face hidden on her mother's shoulder, but Amy stood like a graceful statue, with a most becoming ray of sunshine touching her white forehead and the flower in her hair. It wasn't at all the thing, I'm afraid, but the minute she was fairly married, Meg cried. "'The first kiss for Marmee!' And turning, gave it with her heart on her lips. During the next fifteen minutes, she looked more like a rose than ever, for every one availed themselves of their privileges to the fullest extent, from Mr. Lawrence to old Hannah, who, adorned with a headdress fearfully and wonderfully made, fell upon her in the hall, crying with a sob and a chuckle,
5: Bless you, dearie, a hundred times. The cake ain't hurt a
2: mite, and everything looks lovely. Everybody cleared up after that and said something brilliant or tried to, which did just as well, for laughter is ready when hearts are light. There was no display of gifts, for they were already in the little house, nor was there an elaborate breakfast but a plentiful lunch of cake and fruit dressed with flowers. Mr. Lawrence and Aunt March shrugged and smiled at one another when water, lemonade, and coffee were found to be the only sorts of nectar which the three hebes carried round. No one said anything, till laurie who insisted on serving the bride appeared before her with a loaded salver in his hand and a puzzled expression on his face has joe smashed all the bottles by accident he whispered
6: or am i merely laboring under a delusion that i saw some lying about loose this morning
3: no your grandfather kindly offered us his best and aunt march actually sent some but father put away a little for beth and dispatched the rest to the soldiers home you know he thinks that wine should be used only in illness, and mother says that neither she nor her daughters will ever offer it to any young man under her roof.
2: Meg spoke seriously and expected to see Lorry frown or laugh, but he did neither, for after a quick look at her he said in his impetuous way, I like that, for I've
6: seen enough harm done to wish other women would think as you do.
3: You are not made wise by experience, I hope.
6: And there was an anxious accent in Meg's voice no i give you my word for it don't think too well of me either this is not one of my temptations being brought up where wine is as common as water and almost as harmless i don't care for it but when a pretty girl offers it one doesn't like to refuse you
3: see but you will for the sake of others if not for your own come laurie promise and give me one more reason to call this the happiest day of my life
2: a demand so sudden and so serious made the young man hesitate a moment for ridicule is often harder to bear than self-denial. Meg knew that if he gave the promise he would keep it at all costs, and feeling her power, used it, as a woman may, for her friend's good. She did not speak, but she looked up at him with a face made very eloquent by happiness, and a smile which said, "'No one can refuse me anything to-day.' Laurie certainly could not, and with an answering smile he gave her his hand, saying heartily, "'I promise, Mrs. Brooke.'
3: I thank you very, very much."
2: "'And I drink long life to your resolution, Teddy,' cried Joe, baptizing him with a splash of lemonade as she waved her glass and beamed approvingly upon him. So the toast was drunk, the pledge made, and loyally kept in spite of many temptations, for with instinctive wisdom the girls seized a happy moment to do their friend a service for which he thanked them all his life. After lunch people strolled about by twos and threes through the house and garden enjoying the sunshine without and within meg and john happened to be standing together in the middle of the grass-plot when laurie was seized with an inspiration which put the finishing touch to this unfashionable wedding all the married people take hands and dance
6: round the new-made husband and wife as the germans do while we bachelors and spinsters
2: prance in couples outside cried laurie promenading down the path with amy with such infectious spirit and skill that every one else followed their example without a murmur. Mr. and Mrs. March, Aunt and Uncle Carol, began it. Others rapidly joined in. Even Sally Moffatt, after a moment's hesitation, threw her train over her arm and whisked Ned into the ring. But the crowning joke was Mr. Lawrence and Aunt March, for when the stately old gentleman chausséd solemnly up to the old lady, She just tucked her cane under her arm and hopped briskly away to join hands with the rest and dance about the bridal pair, while the young folks pervaded the garden like butterflies on a midsummer day. Want of breath brought the impromptu ball to a close, and then people began to go.
5: I wish you well, my dear, I heartily wish you well. But I think you'll be sorry for it,
2: said Aunt March to Meg, adding to the bridegroom as he led her to the carriage.
5: You've got a treasure, young man.
0: Say that you deserve it.'
4: "'That is the prettiest wedding I've been to for an age, Ned, and I don't see why, for there wasn't a bit of style about it,'
2: observed Mrs. Moffat to her husband as they drove away.
1: "'Lorry, my lad, if you ever want to indulge in this sort of thing, get one of those little girls to help you, and I shall be perfectly satisfied,'
2: said Mr. Lawrence, settling himself in his easy-chair to rest after the excitement of the morning. "'I'll do my best to gratify you, sir,' was Laurie's unusually dutiful reply, as he carefully unpinned the posy Joe had put in his buttonhole. The little house was not far away, and the only bridal journey Meg had was the quiet walk with John from the old home to the new. When she came down, looking like a pretty Quakeress in her dove-coloured suit and straw bonnet tied with white, they all gathered about her to say good-bye, as tenderly as if she'd been going to make the grand tour
3: don't feel that I am separated from you, Marmy dear, or that I love you any the less for loving John so much,"
2: she said, clinging to her mother with full eyes for a moment.
3: "'I shall come every day, father, and expect to keep my old place in all your hearts though I am married. Beth is going to be with me a great deal, and the other girls will drop in now and then to laugh at my housekeeping struggles. Thank you all for my happy wedding day. Good-bye. Good-bye."
2: They stood watching her. With faces full of love and hope and tender pride as she walked away, leaning on her husband's arm, with her hands full of flowers, and the June sunshine brightening her happy face. And so Meg's married life began. End of chapter 25. CHAPTER 26 OF LITTLE WOMEN. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. LITTLE WOMEN. By Louisa May Alcott chapter twenty six artistic attempts it takes people a long time to learn the difference between talent and genius, especially ambitious young men and women. Amy was learning this distinction through much tribulation, for mistaking enthusiasm for inspiration, she attempted every branch of art with youthful audacity. For a long time there was a lull in the mud-pie business, and she devoted herself to the finest pen-and-ink drawing, in which she showed such taste and skill that her graceful handiwork proved both pleasant and profitable. But overstrained eyes caused pen-and-ink to be laid aside for a bold attempt at poker-sketching. While this attack lasted the family lived in constant fear of a conflagration, for the odor of burning wood pervaded the house at all hours smoke issued from attic and shed with alarming frequency, red-hot pokers lay about promiscuously, and Hannah never went to bed without a pail of water and the dinner-bell at her door in case of fire. Raphael's face was found boldly executed on the underside of the molding-board, and Bacchus on the head of a beer-barrel. A chanting cherub adorned the cover of the sugar-bucket, and attempts to portray Romeo and Juliet supplied kindling for some time. From fire to oil was a natural transition for burned fingers, and Amy fell to painting with undiminished ardor. An artist friend fitted her out with his cast-off palettes, brushes, and colors, and she daubed away, producing pastoral and marine views such as were never seen on land or sea. Her monstrosities in the way of cattle would have taken prizes at an agricultural fair, and the perilous pitching of her vessels would have produced seasickness in the most nautical observer if the utter disregard to all known rules of shipbuilding and rigging had not convulsed him with laughter at the first glance. Swarthy boys and dark-eyed madonnas, staring at you from one corner of the studio, suggested Murillo. Oily brown shadows of faces with a lurid streak in the wrong place meant Rembrandt. Buxom ladies and dropsical infants, Rubens. And Turner appeared in tempests of blue thunder, orange lightning brown rain and purple clouds, with a tomato-colored splash in the middle, which might be the sun or a buoy, a sailor's shirt or a king's robe, as the spectator pleased. Charcoal portraits came next, and the entire family hung in a row, looking as wild and crocky as if just evoked from a coal-bin. Softened into crayon sketches they did better, for the likenesses were good, and Amy's hair, Joe's nose, Meg's mouth and Laurie's eyes were pronounced wonderfully fine. A return to clay and plaster followed, and ghostly casts of her acquaintance's haunted corners of the house or tumbled off closet shelves onto people's heads. Children were enticed in as models, till their incoherent accounts of her mysterious doings caused Miss Amy to be regarded in the light of a young ogress. Her efforts in this line, however, were brought to an abrupt close by an untoward accident, which quenched her ardor other models failing her for a time, she undertook to cast her own pretty foot, and the family were one day alarmed by an unearthly bumping and screaming and running to the rescue found the young enthusiast hopping wildly about the shed with her foot held fast in a planful of plaster, which had hardened with unexpected rapidity. With much difficulty and some danger she was dug out, for Joe was so overcome with laughter while she excavated that her knife went too far, cut the poor foot, and left a lasting memorial of one artistic attempt at least. After this Amy subsided, till a mania for sketching from nature set her to haunting river field and wood for picturesque studies, and sighing for ruins to copy. She caught endless colds sitting on damp grass to book a delicious bit, composed of a stone, a stump, one mushroom, and a broken mullein stalk, or a heavenly mass of clouds that looked like a choice display of feather-beds when done. She sacrificed her complexion floating on the river in the midsummer sun to study light and shade, and got a wrinkle over her nose after trying points of sight, or whatever the squint and string performance is called. If genius is eternal patience, as Michelangelo affirms, Amy had some claim to the divine attribute, for she persevered in spite of all obstacles, failures, and discouragements, firmly believing that in time she should do something worthy to be called high art. She was learning, doing, and enjoying other things, meanwhile, for she had resolved to be an attractive and accomplished woman, even if she never became a great artist. Here she succeeded better, for she was one of those happily created beings who please without effort, make friends everywhere, and take life so gracefully and easily that less fortunate souls are tempted to believe that such are born under a lucky star. Everybody liked her, for among her good gifts was tact. She had an instinctive sense of what was pleasing and proper, always said the right thing to the right person, did just what suited the time and place, and was so self-possessed that her sisters used to say, if Amy went to court without any rehearsal beforehand she'd know exactly what to do. One of her weaknesses was a desire to move in our best society without being quite sure what the best really was. Money, position, fashionable accomplishments and elegant manners were most desirable things in her eyes, and she liked to associate with those who possessed them, often mistaking the false for the true, and admiring what was not admirable. Never forgetting that by birth she was a gentlewoman, she cultivated her aristocratic tastes and feelings, so that when the opportunity came she might be ready to take the place from which poverty now excluded her. My lady, as her friends called her, sincerely desired to be a genuine lady, and was so at heart, but had yet to learn that money cannot buy refinement of nature, that rank does not always confer nobility, and that true breeding makes itself felt in spite of eternal drawbacks. "'I want to ask a favor of you, Mama,' Amy said, coming in with an important air one day.
7: "'Well, little girl, what is it?'
2: replied her mother, in whose eyes the stately young lady still remained the baby."
4: Our drawing class breaks up next week, and before the girls separate for the summer, I want to ask them out here for a day. They are wild to see the river, sketch the broken bridge, and copy some of the things they admire in my book. They have been very kind to me in many ways, and I am grateful, for they are all rich, and I know I am poor, yet they never made any difference." "'Why should they?' And Mrs. March put the question with what the girls called her Maria Teresa air you know as well as i that it does make a difference with nearly everyone so don't ruffle up like a dear motherly hen when your chickens get pecked by smarter birds the ugly duckling turned out a swan you know
2: and amy smiled without bitterness for she possessed a happy temper and hopeful spirit mrs march laughed and smoothed down her maternal
4: pride as she asked
7: well my swan what is your plan
4: I should like to ask the girls out to lunch next week, to take them for a drive to the places they want to see, a row on the river, perhaps, and make a little artistic fate for them.
7: That looks feasible. What do you want for lunch? Cake, sandwiches, fruit, and coffee will be all that is necessary, I suppose.
4: Oh, dear, no! We must have cold tongue and chicken, French chocolate and ice cream besides. The girls are used to such things, and I want my lunch to be proper and elegant, though I do work for my living.
7: How many young ladies are there?
4: asked her mother, beginning to look sober.
7: Twelve or
4: fourteen in the class, but I dare say they won't all come.
7: Bless me, child. You will have to charter an omnibus to carry them about.
4: Why, mother, how can you think of such a thing? Not more than six or eight will probably come, so I shall hire a beach wagon and borrow Mr. Lawrence's cherry bounce. Hannah's pronunciation of Sharabank.
7: All of this will be expensive, Amy.
4: Not very i've calculated the cost and i'll pay for it myself
7: don't you think dear that as these girls are used to such things and the best we can do will be nothing new that some simpler plan would be pleasanter to them as a change if nothing more and much better for us than buying or borrowing what we don't need and attempting a style not in keeping with our circumstances if
4: i can't have it as i like i don't care to have it at all i know that i can carry it out perfectly well if you and the girls will help a little "'And I don't see why I can't if I'm willing to pay for it,' said Amy, with the decision which opposition was apt to change into
2: obstinacy. Mrs. March knew that experience was an excellent teacher, and when it was possible she left her children to learn alone the lessons which she would gladly have made easier if they had not objected to taking advice as much as they did salts and senna.'
7: very well amy if your heart is set upon it and you see your way through without too great an outlay of money time and temper i'll say no more talk it over with the girls and whichever way you decide i'll do my best to help you thanks
2: mother you are always so kind and away went amy to lay her plan before her sisters meg agreed at once and promised her aid gladly offering anything she possessed from her little house itself to her very best salt spoons But Joe frowned upon the whole project, and would have nothing to do with it at first. Why in the world should you spend your money, worry your family, and turn the house upside down for a parcel of girls who don't care a sixpence for you? I thought you had too much pride and sense to truckle to any mortal woman just because she wears French boots and rides in a coupé," said Joe, who, being called from the tragic climax of her novel, was not in the best mood for social enterprises.
4: I don't truckle, and I hate being patronized as much as you do," returned Amy indignantly, for the two still
2: jangled when such questions arose.
4: "'The girls do care for me and I for them, and there's a great deal of kindness and sense and talent among them, in spite of what you call fashionable nonsense. You don't care to make people like you, to go into good society and cultivate your manners and tastes. I do, and I mean to make the most of every chance that comes. You can go through the world with your elbows out and your nose in the air and call it independence if you like. That's not my way." When Amy had wedded her tongue and freed her
2: mind she usually got the best of it, for she seldom failed to have common sense on her side, while Joe carried her love of liberty and hate of conventionalities to such an unlimited extent that she naturally found herself worsted in an argument. Amy's definition of Joe's idea of independence was such a good hit that both burst out laughing, and the discussion took a more amiable turn. Much against her will, Joe at length consented to sacrifice a day to Mrs. Grundy and help her sister through what she regarded as a nonsensical business. The invitations were sent, nearly all accepted, and the following Monday was set apart for the grand event. Hannah was out of humor, because her week's work was deranged, and prophesied
5: that— If the washing and ironing will not done regular, nothing would go well anywheres."
2: This hitch in the mainspring of the domestic machinery had a bad effect upon the whole concern, but Amy's motto was, nil desperandum, and having made up her mind what to do, she proceeded to do it in spite of all obstacles. To begin with, Hannah's cooking didn't turn out well. The chicken was tough, the tongue too salty, and the chocolate wouldn't froth properly. Then the cake and ice cost more than Amy expected, so did the wagon and various other expenses, which seemed trifling at the outset, counted up rather alarmingly afterward. Beth got a cold and took to her bed. Meg had an unusual number of callers to keep her at home, and Joe was in such a divided state of mind that her breakages, accidents, and mistakes were uncommonly numerous, serious, and trying. If it was not fair on Monday the young ladies were to come on Tuesday, an arrangement which aggravated Joe and Hannah to the last degree. On Monday morning the weather was in that undecided state which is more exasperating than a steady pour. It drizzled a little, shone a little, blew a little, and didn't make up its mind till it was too late for anyone else to make up theirs. Amy was up at dawn, hustling people out of their beds and through their breakfasts, that the house might be got in order. The parlor struck her as looking uncommonly shabby, but without stopping to sigh for what she had not she skilfully made the best of what she had, arranging chairs over the worn places in the carpet, covering stains on the walls with homemade statuary which gave an artistic air to the room, as did the lovely vases of flowers Joe scattered about. The lunch looked charming, and as she surveyed it she sincerely hoped it would taste well, and that the borrowed glass, china, and silver would get safely home again. The carriages were promised, Meg and mother were ready to do the honors, Beth was able to help Hannah behind the scenes, Joe had engaged to be as lively and amiable as an absent mind and aching head, and a very decided disapproval of everybody and everything would allow. And as she wearily dressed, Amy cheered herself with anticipations of the happy moment when, lunch safely over, she should drive away with her friends for an afternoon of artistic delights, for the cherry bounce and the broken bridge were her strong points. Then came the hours of suspense, during which she vibrated from parlor to porch, while public opinion varied like the weathercock. A smart shower at eleven had evidently quenched the enthusiasm of the young ladies who were to arrive at twelve, for nobody came, and at two the exhausted family sat down in a blaze of sunshine to consume the perishable portions of the feast that nothing might be lost.
4: No doubt about the weather today. They will certainly come, so we must fly round and be ready for them,"
2: said Amy, as the sun woke her next morning. She spoke briskly, but in her secret soul she wished she had said nothing about Tuesday, for her interest, like her cake, was getting a little stale. "'I can't get any lobsters, so you will have to do without salad today," said Mr. March, coming in half an hour later, with an expression of placid despair.
7: "'Use the chicken, then. The toughness won't matter in a salad.' advised his wife. "'Hannah left it on the kitchen table a minute, and the kittens
8: got at it. I'm very sorry, Amy,'
2: added Beth, who was still a patroness of cats.
8: "'Then
2: I must have a lobster, for tongue alone won't do,' said Amy decidedly. "'Shall I rush into town and demand one?' asked Joe,
4: with the magnanimity of a martyr. "'You'd come bringing it home under your arm without any paper just to try me. I'll go myself,' answered Amy, whose temper was beginning to
2: fail. Shrouded in a thick veil and armed with a genteel travelling-basket, she departed, feeling that a cool drive would soothe her ruffled spirit and fit her for the labours of the day. After some delay the object of her desire was procured, likewise a bottle of dressing to prevent further loss of time at home, and off she drove again, well pleased with her own forethought. As the omnibus contained only one other passenger, a sleepy old lady, Amy pocketed her veil and beguiled the tedium of the way by trying to find out where all her money had gone to. So busy was she with her card full of refractory figures that she did not observe a newcomer, who entered without stopping the vehicle, till a masculine voice said,
7: Good morning, Miss March,
2: and looking up she beheld one of Laurie's most elegant college friends. Fervently hoping that he would get out before she did, Amy utterly ignored the basket at her feet and congratulating herself that she had on her new travelling dress, returned the young man's greeting with her usual suavity and spirit. They got on excellently, for Amy's chief care was soon set at rest by learning that the gentleman would leave first, and she was chatting away in a peculiarly lofty strain when the old lady got out. In stumbling to the door she upset the basket. And oh horror! The lobster, in all its vulgar size and brilliancy, was revealed to the high-born eyes of a tutor.
7: "'By Jove, she's forgotten her dinner,'
2: cried the unconscious youth, poking the scarlet monster into its place with his cane and preparing to hand out the basket after the old lady. "'Please don't. It's—it's mine,' murmured Amy, with a face nearly as red as her fish.
7: "'Oh, really? I beg pardon. It's an uncommonly fine
0: one, isn't it?'
2: said Tudor, with a great presence of mind and an air of sober interest that did credit to his breeding amy recovered herself in a breath set her
4: basket boldly on the seat and said laughing don't you wish you were to have some of the salad he's going to make and to see the charming young ladies who are to eat it now that was tact
2: for two of the ruling foibles of the masculine mind were touched the lobster was instantly surrounded by a halo of pleasing reminiscences and curiosity about the charming young ladies diverted his mind from the comical mishap i suppose he'll laugh and joke over it with laurie but I shan't see them, that's a comfort," thought Amy, as Tudor bowed and departed. She did not mention this meeting at home, though she discovered that, thanks to the upset, her new dress was much damaged by the rivulets of dressing that meandered down the skirt, but went through with the preparations which now seemed more irksome than before, and at twelve o'clock all was ready again. Feeling that the neighbors were interested in her movements she wished to efface the memory of yesterday's failure by a grand success to-day, so she ordered the cherry-bounce and drove away in state to meet and escort her guests to the banquet.
7: "'There's the rumble. They're coming. I'll go on to the porch and meet them. It looks hospitable, and I want the poor child to have a good time after all her trouble,'
2: said Mrs. March, suiting the action to the word. But after one glance she retired with an indescribable expression, for, looking quite lost in the big carriage, sat Amy and one young lady. "'Run, Beth, and help Hannah clear half the things off the table. It will be too absurd to put a luncheon for twelve before a single girl,' cried Joe, hurrying away to the lower regions, too excited to stop even for a laugh. In came Amy, quite calm and delightfully cordial to the one guest who had kept her promise. The rest of the family, being of a dramatic turn, played their parts equally well, and Miss Elliot found them a most hilarious set for it was impossible to control entirely the merriment which possessed them. The remodelled lunch being gaily partaken of, the studio and garden visited, and art discussed with enthusiasm, Amy ordered a buggy, alas for the elegant cherry-bounce, and drove her friend quietly about the neighbourhood till sunset, when the party went out. As she came walking in, looking very tired but as composed as ever, she observed that every vestige of the unfortunate fete had disappeared except a suspicious pucker about the corners of joe's mouth
7: you've had a loverly afternoon for your drive dear
8: said her
2: mother as respectfully as if the whole twelve had come
8: miss Elliot is a very sweet girl and seemed to enjoy herself i thought
2: observed
3: beth with unusual warmth could you spare me some of your cake i really need some i
4: have so much company and i can't make such delicious stuff as yours asked mag soberly "'Take it all. I'm the only one here who likes sweet things, and it will mould before I can dispose of it,' answered Amy, thinking with a sigh of the generous store
2: she had laid in for such an end as this. "'It's a pity Laurie isn't here to help us,' began Joe, as they sat down to ice-cream and salad for the second time in two days. A warning look from her mother checked any further remarks, and the whole family ate in heroic silence, till Mr. March mildly observed—'
5: salad
7: was one of the favorite dishes of the ancients and evelyn
2: here a general explosion of laughter cut short the history of salads to the great surprise of the learned gentleman
4: bundle everything into a basket and send it to the hummels germans like messes i'm sick of the sight of this and there's no reason you should all die of a surfeit because i've been a fool cried amy wiping her eyes i thought i should have died when
2: i saw you two girls rattling about in the what do you call it like two kernels in a very big nutshell and mother waiting in state to receive the throng sighed joe quite spent with laughter
7: i'm very sorry you were disappointed dear but we all did our best to satisfy you
4: said mrs march in a tone full of motherly regret i am satisfied i've done what i undertook and it's not my fault that it failed i comfort myself with that said Amy with a little quiver in her voice. I thank you all very much for helping me, and I'll thank you still more if you won't allude to it for a month at least. No one did, for several months, but the word FETE
2: always produced a general smile, and Laurie's birthday gift to Amy was a tiny coral lobster in the shape of a charm for her watchguard. End of chapter 26 Chapter twenty seven of Little Women. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter twenty seven Literary Lessons Fortune suddenly smiled upon Joe, and dropped a good luck penny in her path. Not a golden penny exactly, but I doubt if half a million would have given more real happiness than did the little sum that came to her in this wise. Every few weeks she would shut herself up in her room, put on her scribbling suit, and fall into a vortex, as she expressed it, writing away at her novel with all her heart and soul, for till that was finished she could find no peace. Her scribbling suit consisted of a black woolen pinafore on which she could wipe her pen at will, and a cap of the same material, adorned with a cheerful red bow, into which she bundled her hair when the decks were cleared for action. This cap was a beacon to the inquiring eyes of her family, who during these periods kept their distance, merely popping in their heads semi-occasionally to ask with interest, Does genius burn, Jo? They did not always venture even to ask this question, but took an observation of the cap and judged accordingly. If this expressive article of dress was drawn low upon the forehead, it was a sign that hard work was going on. In exciting moments it was pushed rakishly askew, and when despair seized the author it was plucked wholly off and cast upon the floor at such times the intruder silently withdrew and not until the red bow was seen gaily erect upon the gifted brow did any one dare address joe she did not think herself a genius by any means but when the writing fit came on she gave herself up to it with entire abandon and led a blissful life unconscious of want care or bad weather while she sat safe and happy in an imaginary world, full of friends almost as real and dear to her as any in the flesh. Sleep forsook her eyes, meals stood untasted, day and night were all too short to enjoy the happiness which blessed her only at such times and made these hours worth living, even if they bore no other fruit. The divine afflatus usually lasted a week or two, and then she emerged from her vortex, hungry, sleepy, cross or despondent. She was just recovering from one of these attacks, when she was prevailed upon to escort Miss Crocker to a lecture, and in return for her virtue, was rewarded with a new idea. It was a people's course, the lecture on the pyramids, and Joe rather wondered at the choice of such a subject for such an audience, but took it for granted that some great social evil would be remedied, or some great want supplied, by unfolding the glories of the pharaohs to an audience whose thoughts were busy with the price of coal and flour and whose lives were spent in trying to solve harder riddles than that of the sphinx they were early and while miss Crocker set the heel of her stocking jo amused herself by examining the faces of the people who occupied the seat with them on her left were two matrons with massive foreheads and bonnets to match discussing women's rights and making tatting beyond sat a humble pair of lovers artlessly holding each other by the hand a sombre spinster eating peppermints out of a paper bag and an old gentleman taking his preparatory nap behind a yellow bandana. On her right, her only neighbor was a studious-looking lad absorbed in a newspaper. It was a pictorial sheet, and Joe examined the work of art nearest her, idly wondering what fortuitous concatenation of circumstances needed the melodramatic illustration of an Indian in full war costume tumbling over a precipice with a wolf at his throat, while two infuriated young gentlemen with unnaturally small feet and big eyes were stabbing each other close by and a dishevelled female was flying away in the background with her mouth wide open pausing to turn a page the lad saw her looking and with boyish good-nature offered half his paper saying bluntly want to read it that's a first-rate story joe accepted it with a smile for she had never outgrown her liking for lads and soon found herself involved in the usual labyrinth of love, mystery, and murder, for the story belonged to that class of light literature in which the passions have a holiday, and when the author's invention fails, a grand catastrophe clears the stage of one half the dramatis personae, leaving the other half to exult over their downfall.
8: "'Prime, isn't it?'
2: asked the boy, as her eye went down the last paragraph of her portion.
8: "'I
2: think you and I could do as well as that if we tried,' returned Joe amused at his admiration of the trash.
8: "'I should think I was a pretty lucky chap if I could. She makes a good living out of such stories, they say,' and he pointed
2: to the name of Mrs. S. L. A. N. G. Northbury, under the title of the tale. "'Do you know her?' asked Joe, with sudden interest.
8: "'No, but I read all her pieces, and I know a fellow who works in the office where this paper is printed.' "'Do you say she makes a good living out of stories like this?' and joe
2: looked more respectfully at the agitated group and thickly sprinkled exclamation points that adorned the page guess she does she knows just what folks like and gets paid well for writing it here the lecture began but joe heard very little of it for while professor sands was prosing away about belzoni cheops scarabay and hieroglyphics she was covertly taking down the address of the paper and boldly resolving to try for the hundred-dollar prize offered in its columns for a sensational story. By the time the lecture ended, and the audience awoke, she had built up a splendid fortune for herself—not the first, founded on paper—and was already deep in the concoction of her story, being unable to decide whether the duel should come before the elopement or after the murder. She said nothing of her plan at home, but fell to work next day, much to the disquiet of her mother, who always looked a little anxious when genius took to burning Jo had never tried this style before contenting herself with very mild romances for the spread eagle her experience and miscellaneous reading were of service now for they gave her some idea of dramatic effect and supplied plot language and costumes her story was as full of desperation and despair as her limited acquaintance with those uncomfortable emotions enabled her to make it and having located it in Lisbon, she wound up with an earthquake, as a striking and appropriate denouement. The manuscript was privately dispatched, accompanied by a note, modestly saying that if the tale didn't get the prize, which the writer hardly dared expect, she would be very glad to receive any sum it might be considered worth. Six weeks is a long time to wait, and a still longer time for a girl to keep a secret. But Joe did both, and was just beginning to give up all hope of ever seeing her manuscript again, when a letter arrived which almost took her breath away, for on opening it a cheque for a hundred dollars fell into her lap. For a minute she stared at it as if it had been a snake. Then she read her letter and began to cry. If the amiable gentleman who wrote that kindly note could have known what intense happiness he was giving a fellow-creature, I think he would devote his leisure hours, if he has any, to that amusement. For Joe valued the letter more than the money, because it was encouraging, and after years of effort it was so pleasant to find that she had learned to do something, though it was only to write a sensation story. A prouder young woman was seldom seen than she. When having composed herself, she electrified the family by appearing before them with the letter in one hand, the check in the other, announcing that she had won the prize. Of course there was a great jubilee, and when the story came everyone read and praised it, though after her father had told her that the language was good the romance fresh and hearty and the tragedy quite thrilling he shook his head and said in his unworldly way you can do better than this joe aim at the highest and never mind the money
4: i think the money is the best part of it what will you do with such a fortune asked amy regarding the magic
2: slip of paper with a reverential eye send mother and beth to the seaside for a month or two answered joe promptly to the seaside they went, after much discussion, and though Beth didn't come home as plump and rosy as could be desired, she was much better, while Mrs. March declared she felt ten years younger. So Joe was satisfied with the investment of her prize-money, and fell to work with a cheery spirit, bent on earning more of those delightful checks. She did earn several that year, and began to feel herself a power in the house, for by the magic of a pen her rubbish turned into comforts for them all the duke's daughter paid the butcher's bill, a phantom hand put down a new carpet, and the curse of the coventries proved the blessing of the marches, in the way of groceries and gowns. Wealth is certainly a most desirable thing, but poverty has its sunny side, and one of the sweet uses of adversity is the genuine satisfaction which comes from hearty work of head or hand, and to the inspiration of necessity we owe half the wise, beautiful, and useful blessings of the world. Jo enjoyed a taste of this satisfaction, and ceased to envy richer girls, taking comfort in the knowledge that she could supply her own wants and need ask no one for a penny. Little notice was taken of her stories, but they found a market, and encouraged by this fact, she resolved to make a bold stroke for fame and fortune. Having copied her novel for the fourth time, read it to all her confidential friends, and submitted it with fear and trembling to three publishers, she at last disposed of it on condition that she would cut it down one-third and omit all the parts which she particularly admired. Now, I must either bundle it back into my tin kitchen to mould, pay for printing it myself, or chop it up to suit purchasers, and get what I can for it. Fame is a very good thing to have in the house, but cash is more convenient, so I wish to take the sense of the meeting on this important subject, said Joe, calling a family council.
7: Don't spoil your book, my
1: girl for there is more in it than you know and the idea is well worked out let it wait and
5: ripen
2: was her father's advice and he practised what he preached having waited patiently thirty years for fruit of his own to ripen and being in no haste to gather it even now when it was sweet and mellow
7: it seems to me that joe will profit more by taking the trial than by waiting said mrs march criticism is the best test of such work for it will show her both unsuspected merits and faults and help her to do better next time. We are too partial, but the praise and blame of outsiders will prove useful, even if she gets but little money. Yes,
2: said Jo, knitting her brows. That's just it. I've been fussing over the thing so long I really don't know whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. It will be a great help to have cool, impartial persons take a look at it and tell me what they think of it. I
3: wouldn't leave a word out of it. You'll spoil it if you do, for the interest of the story is more in the minds than in the actions of the people, and it will be all a muddle if you don't explain as you go on,"
2: said Meg, who firmly believed that this book was the most remarkable novel ever written. "'But Mr. Allen says, leave out the explanations, make it brief and dramatic, and let the characters tell the story,' interrupted Joe, turning to the publisher's note.
4: "'Do as he tells you. He knows what we'll sell and we don't. "'Make a good popular book and get as much money as you can. By and by, when you've got a name, you can afford to digress and have philosophical and metaphysical people in your novels,' said Amy, who took a strictly practical view of the subject. "'Well,' said Joe,
2: laughing, "'if my people are philosophical and metaphysical it isn't my fault, for I know nothing about such things, except what I hear father say sometimes.' If I've got some of his wise ideas jumbled up with my romance, so much the better for me. Now, Beth, what do you say?'
8: "'I should so like to see it printed soon,'
2: was all Beth said, and smiled in saying it. But there was an unconscious emphasis on the last word, and a wistful look in the eyes that never lost their childlike candour, which chilled Joe's heart for a minute with a foreboding fear, and decided her to make her little venture soon. "'So,' With Spartan firmness, the young authoress laid her first-born on her table and chopped it up as ruthlessly as any ogre. In the hope of pleasing every one, she took every one's advice, and like the old man and his donkey in the fable, suited nobody. Her father liked the metaphysical streak which had unconsciously got into it, so that was allowed to remain, though she had her doubts about it. Her mother thought that there was a trifle too much description. Out, therefore, it came and with it many necessary links in the story. Meg admired the tragedy, so Joe piled up the agony to suit her, while Amy objected to the fun, and with the best intentions in life, Joe quenched the sprightly scenes which relieved the sombre character of the story. Then, to complicate the ruin, she cut it down one-third, and confidingly sent the poor little romance, like a picked robin, out into the big, busy world to try its fate. Well, it was printed, and she got three hundred dollars for it—likewise plenty of praise and blame, both so much greater than she expected that she was thrown into a state of bewilderment from which it took her some time to recover. "'You said, mother, that criticism would help me. But how can it when it's so contradictory that I don't know whether I've written a promising book or broken all the Ten Commandments?' cried poor Joe, turning over a heap of notices, the perusal of which filled her with pride and joy one minute. Wrath and dismay the next. This man says, An exquisite book, full of truth, beauty, and earnestness. All is sweet, pure, and healthy," continued the perplexed authoress. The next, The theory of the book is bad, full of morbid fancies, spiritualistic ideas, and unnatural characters. Now, as I had no theory of any kind, don't believe in spiritualism, and copied my characters from life, I don't see how this critic can be right. Another says, It's one of the best American novels which has appeared for years—I know better than that—and the next asserts that, though it is original and written with great force and feeling, it is a dangerous book. Tisn't! Some make fun of it, some overpraise, and nearly all insist that I had a deep theory to expound when I wrote it only for the pleasure and the money. I wish I'd printed the whole or not at all, for I do hate to be so misjudged." Her family and friends administered comfort and commendation liberally, yet it was a hard time for sensitive high-spirited Joe, who meant so well and had apparently done so ill. But it did her good, for those whose opinion had real value gave her the criticism which is an author's best education, and when the first soreness was over she could laugh at her poor little book, yet believe in it still, and feel herself the wiser and stronger for the buffeting she had received. Not being a genius, like Keats, it won't kill me," she said stoutly. "'And I've got the joke on my side, after all, for the parts that were taken straight out of real life are denounced as impossible and absurd, and the scenes that I made up out of my own silly head are pronounced charmingly natural, tender, and true. So I'll comfort myself with that, and when I'm ready I'll up again and take another.'" End of chapter 27 Chapter twenty-eight of Little Women This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter twenty-eight Domestic Experiences Like most other young matrons, Meg began her married life with the determination to be a model housekeeper. John should find home a paradise. He should always see a smiling face should fare sumptuously every day and never know the loss of a button she brought so much love energy and cheerfulness to the work that she could not but succeed in spite of some obstacles her paradise was not a tranquil one for the little woman fussed was over-anxious to please and bustled about like a true martha cumbered with many cares she was too tired sometimes even to smile John grew dyspeptic after a course of dainty dishes and ungratefully demanded plain fare. As for Buttons, she soon learned to wonder where they went, to shake her head over the carelessness of men and to threaten to make him sew them on himself and see if his work would stand impatient and clumsy fingers any better than hers. They were very happy, even after they discovered that they couldn't live on love alone. John did not find Meg's beauty diminished, though she beamed at him from behind the familiar coffee pot. Nor did Meg miss any of the romance from the daily parting, when her husband followed up his kiss with the tender inquiry,
1: Shall I send some veal or mutton for dinner, darling?
2: The little house ceased to be a glorified bower, but it became a home, and the young couple soon felt that it was a change for the better. At first they played keep house and frolicked over it like children. Then John took steadily to business, feeling the cares of the head of a family upon his shoulders, and Meg, laid by her cambric wrappers, put on a big apron, and fell to work, as before said, with more energy than discretion. While the cooking mania lasted she went through Mrs. Cornelius's recipe-book as if it were a mathematical exercise, working out the problems with patience and care Sometimes her family were invited in to help eat up a too bounteous feast of successes, or Lottie would be privately dispatched with a batch of failures, which were to be concealed from all eyes in the convenient stomachs of the little hummels. An evening with John over the account-books usually produced a temporary lull in the culinary enthusiasm, and a frugal fit would ensue, during which the poor man was put through a course of bread-pudding, hash, and warmed-over coffee which tried his soul, although he bore it with praiseworthy fortitude. Before the golden mean was found, however, Meg added to her domestic possessions what young couples seldom get on long without—a family jar. Fired with a housewifely wish to see her storeroom stocked with homemade preserves, she undertook to put up her own currant jelly. John was requested to order home a dozen or so of little pots and an extra quantity of sugar, for their own currants were ripe and were to be attended to at once. As John firmly believed that my wife was equal to anything, and took a natural pride in her skill, he resolved that she should be gratified, and their only crop of fruit laid by in a most pleasing form for winter use. Home came four dozen delightful little pots, half a barrel of sugar, and a small boy to pick the currants for her. With her pretty hair tucked into a little cap, arms spared to the elbow, and a checked apron which had a coquettish look in spite of the bib, the young housewife fell to work, feeling no doubts about her success, for hadn't she seen Hannah do it hundreds of times? The array of pots rather amazed her at first. But John was so fond of jelly, and the nice little jars would look so well on the top shelf that Meg resolved to fill them all and spent a long day picking, boiling, straining, and fussing over her jelly. She did her best, she asked advice of Mrs. Cornelius, she racked her brain to remember what Hannah did that she left undone, she reboiled, resugared, and restrained, but that dreadful stuff wouldn't gel. She longed to run home, bib and all, and ask mother to lend her a hand, but John and she had agreed that they would never annoy anyone with their private worries, experiments, or quarrels. They had laughed over that last word as if the idea it suggested was a most preposterous one, but they had held to their resolve, and whenever they could get on without help they did so, and no one interfered, for Mrs. March had advised the plan. So Meg wrestled alone with the refractory sweetmeats all that hot summer day, and at five o'clock sat down in her topsy-turvy kitchen, wrung her bedaubed hands, lifted up her voice, and wept. Now, in the first flush of the new life, She had often said,
3: "'My husband shall always feel free to bring a friend home whenever he likes. I shall always be prepared. There shall be no flurry, no scolding, no discomfort, but a neat house, a cheerful wife, and a good dinner. John, dear, never stop to ask my leave. Invite whom you please, and be sure of a welcome from me.'"
2: How charming that was, to be sure! John quite glowed with pride to hear her say it, and felt what a blessed thing it was to have a superior wife. But although they had company from time to time, it never happened to be unexpected, and Meg had never had an opportunity to distinguish herself till now. It always happens so in this vale of tears. There is an inevitability about such things which we can only wonder at, deplore, and bear as best we can. If John had not forgotten all about the jelly, it really would have been unpardonable in him to choose that day, of all the days in the year, to bring a friend home to dinner unexpectedly. Congratulating himself that a handsome repast had been ordered that morning, feeling sure that it would be ready to the minute, and indulging in pleasant anticipations of the charming effect it would produce when his pretty wife came running out to meet him, he escorted his friend to his mansion with the irrepressible satisfaction of a young host and husband. It is a world of disappointments, as John discovered when he reached the dovecote. The front door usually stood hospitably open. Now it was not only shut, but locked, and yesterday's mud still adorned the steps. The parlour windows were closed and curtained, no picture of the pretty wife sewing on the piazza in white with a distracting little bow in her hair, or a bright-eyed hostess smiling a shy welcome as she greeted her guest. Nothing of the sort, for not a soul appeared but a sanguinary-looking boy asleep under the currant bushes.
1: I'm afraid something has happened. Step into the garden, Scott, while I look up Mrs. Brooke
2: said john alarmed at the silence and solitude round the house he hurried led by a pungent smell of burned sugar and mr scott strolled after him with a queer look on his face he paused discreetly at a distance when brooke disappeared but he could both see and hear and being a bachelor enjoyed the prospect mightily in the kitchen reigned confusion and despair one addition of jelly was trickled from pot to pot Another lay upon the floor, and a third was burning gaily on the stove. Lottie, with Teutonic phlegm, was calmly eating bread and currant wine for the jelly was still in a hopelessly liquid state while Mrs. Brooke, with her apron over her head, sat sobbing dismally.
1: My dearest girl, what is the matter?
2: cried John, rushing in with awful visions of scalded hands, sudden news of affliction, and secret consternation at the thought of the guest in the garden.
4: "'Oh, John,
3: I am so tired and hot and cross and worried. I've been at it till I am all worn out. Do come and help me or I shall die!'
2: And the exhausted housewife cast herself upon his breast, giving him a sweet welcome in every sense of the word, for her pinafore had been baptized at the same time as the floor.
1: "'What worries you, dear? Has anything dreadful happened?'
2: asked the anxious John, tenderly kissing the crown of the little cap, which was all askew. "'Yes!' sobbed Meg despairingly.
1: "'Tell me quick, then. Don't cry. I can bear anything better than that. Out with it, love!'
3: "'The—the the jelly won't gel, and I don't know what to do!'
2: John Brooke laughed then as he never dared to laugh afterward and the derisive Scott smiled involuntarily as he heard the hearty peal, which put the finishing stroke to poor Meg's woe.
1: Is that all? Fling it out of the window and don't bother any more about it. I'll buy you quarts if you want it. But for heaven's sake don't have hysterics, for I've brought Jack Scott home to dinner and—
2: John got no further, for Meg cast him off, and clasped her hands with a tragic gesture as she fell into a chair exclaiming in a tone of mingled indignation, reproach, and dismay,
3: "'A man to dinner and everything in a mess? John Brooke,
2: how could you do such a thing?'
1: "'Hush! He's in the garden. I forgot the confounded jelly, but it can't be helped now,'
2: said John, surveying the prospect with an anxious eye. "'You ought to have sent word or told me this morning, and you ought to have remembered how busy I was,' continued Meg petulantly, for even turtle-doves will peck when ruffled.
1: I didn't know it this morning, and there was no time to send word, for I met him on the way out. I never thought of asking leave, when you have always told me to do as I liked. I never tried it before, and hang me if I ever do it again,'
2: added John, with an aggrieved air. "'I should hope not. Take him away at once. I can't see him, and there isn't any dinner.'
1: "'Well, I like that. Where's the beef and vegetables I sent home, and the pudding you promised?'
2: cried John, rushing to the larder.
3: "'I hadn't time to cook anything. I meant to dine at Mother's. I'm sorry, but I was so busy.'
2: And Meg's tears began again. John was a mild man, but he was human, and after a long day's work to come home tired, hungry, and hopeful, to find a chaotic house, an empty table, and a cross wife, was not exactly conducive to repose of mind or manner. He restrained himself, however, and the little squall would have blown over, but for one unlucky word
1: it's a scrape i acknowledge but if you will lend a hand we'll pull through and have a good time yet don't cry dear but just exert yourself a bit and fix up something to eat we're both as hungry as hunters so we shan't mind what it is give us the cold meat and bread and cheese we won't ask for jelly
2: he meant it to be a good-natured joke but that one word sealed his fate meg thought it was too cruel to hint about her sad failure and the last atom of patience vanished as he spoke.
3: "'You must get yourself out of the scrape as you can. I'm too used up to exert myself for any one. It's like a man to propose a bone and vulgar bread and cheese for company. I won't have anything of the sort in my house. Take that Scot up to Mother's and tell him I'm away, sick, dead, anything. I won't see him. And you two can laugh at me and my jelly as much as you like. You won't have anything else here.'
2: And having delivered her defiance all on one breath, meg cast away her pinafore and precipitately left the field to bemoan herself in her own room what those two creatures did in her absence she never knew but mr scott was not taken up to mother's and when meg descended after they had strolled away together she found traces of a promiscuous lunch which filled her with horror lottie reported that they had eaten
7: a much and greatly laughed and the master bid her throw away all the sweet stuff and hide the pots meg longed to go
2: tell mother but a sense of shame at her own shortcomings, of loyalty to John,
3: who might be cruel but nobody should know it,
2: restrained her, and after a summary cleaning up she dressed herself prettily and sat down to wait for John to come and be forgiven. Unfortunately John didn't come, not seeing the matter in that light. He had carried it off as a good joke with Scott, excused his little wife as well as he could, and played the host so hospitably that his friend enjoyed the impromptu dinner and promised to come again. But John was angry, though he did not show it, he felt that Meg had deserted him in his hour of need.
1: It wasn't fair to tell a man to bring folks home any time with perfect freedom, and when he took you at your word to flame up and blame him, and leave him in the lurch, to be laughed at or pitied. No, by George, it wasn't, and Meg must know it.
2: He had fumed inwardly during the feast, but when the flurry was over and he strolled home after seeing Scott off, A milder mood came over him.
1: "'Poor little thing. It was hard upon her when she tried so heartily to please me. She was wrong, of course, but then she was young. I must be patient and teach her.'
2: He hoped she had not gone home. He hated gossip and interference. For a minute he was ruffled again at the mere thought of it, and then the fear that Meg would cry herself sick softened his heart and sent him on at a quicker pace, resolving to be kind and calm, but firm, quite firm and show her where she had failed in her duty to her spouse. Meg likewise resolved to be calm and kind but firm, and show him his duty. She longed to run to meet him and beg pardon, and be kissed and comforted, as she was sure of being, but of course she did nothing of the sort, and when she saw John coming, began to hum quite naturally as she rocked and sewed, like a lady of leisure in her best parlour. John was a little disappointed not to find a tender niobe, but feeling that his dignity demanded the first apology, he made none, only came leisurely in and laid himself upon the sofa, with a singularly relevant remark.
1: We are going to have a new moon, my dear.
2: I've no objection, was Meg's equally soothing remark. A few other topics of general interest were introduced by Mr. Brooke and wet-blanketed by Mrs. Brooke, and conversation languished. John went to one window, unfolded his paper, and wrapped himself in it, figuratively speaking. Meg went to the other window, and sewed as if new rosettes for slippers were among the necessaries of life. Neither spoke. Both looked quite calm and firm, and both felt desperately uncomfortable.
3: "'Oh, dear,' thought Meg, "'married life is very trying, and does need infinite patience as well as love, as Mother says.
2: THE WORD MOTHER SUGGESTED OTHER MATERNAL COUNSELS GIVEN LONG AGO, AND RECEIVED WITH UNBELIEVING PROTESTS.
7: John is a good man, but he has his faults, and you must learn to see and bear with them, remembering your own. He is very decided, but never will be obstinate, if you reason kindly, not oppose impatiently. He is very accurate and particular about the truth, a good trait, though you call him fussy never deceive him by look or word meg and he will give you the confidence you deserve the support you need he has a temper not like ours one flash and then all over but the white still anger that is seldom stirred but once kindled is hard to quench be careful be very careful not to wake his anger against yourself for peace and happiness depend on keeping his respect watch yourself be the first to ask pardon if you both err and guard against the little piques, misunderstandings and hasty words that often pave the way for bitter sorrow and regret these words came back to
2: meg as she sat sewing in the sunset especially the last this was the first serious disagreement her own hasty speeches sounded both silly and unkind as she recalled them her own anger looked childish now and thoughts of poor john coming home to such a scene quite melted her heart she glanced at him with tears in her eyes, but she did not see them. She put down her work and got up, thinking,
3: "'I will be the first to say forgive me.'
2: But he did not seem to hear her. She went very slowly across the room, for pride was hard to swallow, and stood by him, but he did not turn his head. For a minute she felt as if she really couldn't do it. Then came the thought,
3: "'This is the beginning. I'll do my part and have nothing to reproach myself with."
2: and stooping down she softly kissed her husband on the forehead. Of course that settled it. The penitent kiss was better than a world of words, and John had her on his knee in a minute, saying tenderly,
1: It was too bad to laugh at the poor little jelly-pots. Forgive me, my dear, I never will again.
2: But he did, oh bless you, yes, hundreds of times, and so did Meg, both declaring that it was the sweetest jelly they ever made for family peace was preserved in that little family jar. After this Meg had Mr. Scott to dinner by special invitation, and served him up a pleasant feast without a cooked wife for the first course, on which occasion she was so gay and gracious and made everything go off so charmingly that Mr. Scott told John he was a lucky fellow, and shook his head over the hardships of bachelorhood all the way home. In the autumn new trials and experiences came to Meg. Sally Moffatt renewed her friendship and was always running out for a dish of gossip at the little house or inviting, that poor dear, to come in and spend the day at the big house. It was pleasant, for in dull weather Meg often felt lonely. All were busy at home, John absent till night, and nothing to do but sew or read or potter about. So it naturally fell out that Meg got into the way of gadding and gossiping with her friend. Seeing Sally's pretty things made her long for such, and pity herself because she had not got them. Sally was very kind, and often offered her the coveted trifles, but Meg declined them, knowing that John wouldn't like it. And then this foolish little woman went and did what John disliked even worse. She knew her husband's income, and she loved to feel that he trusted her, not only with his happiness, but what some men seemed to value more—his money. She knew where it was, was free to take what she liked, and all he asked was that she should keep account of every penny, pay bills once a month, and remember that she was a poor man's wife. Till now she had done well, been prudent and exact, kept her little account-books neatly, and showed them to him monthly without fear. But that autumn the serpent got into Meg's Paradise, and tempted her like many a modern eve, not with apples, but with dresses meg didn't like to be pitied and made to feel poor it irritated her but she was ashamed to confess it and now and then she tried to console herself by buying something pretty so that sally needn't think she had to economize she always felt wicked after it for the pretty things were seldom necessaries but then they cost so little it wasn't worth worrying about so the trifles increased unconsciously and in the shopping excursions she was no longer a passive looker-on. But the trifles cost more than one would imagine, and when she cast up her accounts at the end of the month the sum total rather scared her. John was busy that month and left the bills to her, the next month he was absent, but the third he had a grand quarterly settling up, and Meg never forgot it. A few days before she had done a dreadful thing, and it weighed upon her conscience. Sally had been buying silks, And meg longed for a new one, just a handsome light one for parties her black silk was so common, and thin things for evening wear were only proper for girls. Aunt March usually gave the sisters a present of twenty-five dollars apiece at New Year's. That was only a month to wait, and here was a lovely violet silk going at a bargain, and she had the money if she only dared to take it. John always said what was his was hers, but would he think it right to spend not only the prospective five-and-twenty, But another five-and-twenty out of the household fund. That was the question. Sally had urged her to do it, had offered to lend the money, and with the best intentions in life had tempted Meg beyond her strength. In an evil moment the shopman held up the lovely shimmering folds and said,
7: "'A bargain, I assure you, ma'am,'
2: she answered. "'I'll take it.' And it was cut off and paid for, and Sally had exulted, And she had laughed as if it were a thing of no consequence and driven away, feeling as if she had stolen something and the police were after her. When she got home she tried to assuage the pangs of remorse by spreading forth the lovely silk, but it looked less silvery now, didn't become her after all, and the words fifty dollars seemed stamped like a pattern down each breadth. She put it away, but it haunted her, not delightfully as a new dress should, but dreadfully, like the ghost of a folly that was not easily laid. When John got out his books that night Meg's heart sank, and for the first time in her married life she was afraid of her husband. The kind brown eyes looked as if they could be stern, and though he was unusually merry she fancied he had found her out, but didn't mean to let her know it. The house bills were all paid, the books all in order. John had praised her and was undoing the old pocket-book which they called the bank when meg knowing that it was quite empty stopped his hand saying nervously
3: you haven't seen my private expense book yet
2: john never asked to see it but she always insisted on his doing so and used to enjoy his masculine amazement at the queer things women wanted and made him guess what piping was demand fiercely the meaning of a hug me tight Or wonder how a little thing composed of three rosebuds, a bit of velvet, and a pair of strings could possibly be a bonnet and cost six dollars. That night he looked as if he would like the fun of quizzing her figures and pretending to be horrified at her extravagance, as he often did, being particularly proud of his prudent wife. The little book was brought slowly out and laid down before him. Meg got behind his chair under pretense of smoothing the wrinkles out of his tired forehead and standing there, she said, with her panic increasing with every word,
3: John, dear, I'm ashamed to show you my book, for I've really been dreadfully extravagant lately. I go about so much I must have things, you know, and Sally advised my getting it, so I did, and my New Year's money will partly pay for it, but I was sorry after I had done it, for I knew you'd think it
2: wrong in me. John laughed and drew her round beside him, saying good humouredly
1: Don't go and hide. I won't beat you if you have got a pair of killing-boots. I'm rather proud of my wife's feet, and don't mind if she does pay eight or nine dollars for her boots, if they're good ones."
2: That had been one of her last trifles, and John's eye had fallen on it as he spoke.
3: Oh, what will he say when he comes to that awful fifty dollars?
2: thought Meg, with a shiver.
3: It's worse than boots. It's a
2: silk dress, she said with the calmness of desperation, for she wanted the worst over.
1: Well, dear. What is the deemed total, as Mr. Mantalini says?"
2: That didn't sound like John, and she knew he was looking up at her with the straightforward look that she had always been ready to meet and answer with one as frank till now. She turned the page and her head at the same time, pointing to the sum which would have been bad enough without the fifty, but which was appalling to her with that added. For a minute the room was very still. Then John said slowly, but she could feel it cost him an effort to express no displeasure.
1: Well, I don't know that fifty is much for a dress, with all the furbelows and notions you have to have to finish it off these days.
3: It isn't made or
2: trimmed, sighed Meg faintly, for a sudden recollection of the cost still to be incurred quite overwhelmed her.
1: Twenty-five yards of silk seems a good deal to cover one small woman, but I've no doubt my wife will look as fine as Ned and Moffat's when she gets it on,
2: said John dryly.
3: I know you are angry, John, but I can't help it. I don't mean to waste your money, and I didn't think those little things would count up so. I can't resist them when I see Sally buying all she wants and pitying me because I don't. I try to be contented, but it is hard, and I'm tired
4: of being poor.
2: The last words were spoken so low she thought he did not hear them. But he did, and they wounded him deeply, for he had denied himself many pleasures for Meg's sake. She could have bitten her tongue out the minute she had said it, for John pushed the books away and got up, saying with a little quiver in his voice,
1: I was afraid of this. I do my best, Meg.
2: If he had scolded her or even shaken her it would not have broken her heart like those few words. She ran to him and held him close, crying with repentant tears.
3: Oh, John, my dear, kind, hard-working boy, I didn't mean it. It was so wicked, so untrue and ungrateful. How could I say it? Oh, how could I say it?
2: He was very kind, forgave her readily, and did not utter one reproach. But Meg knew that she had done and said a thing which would not be forgotten soon, although he might never allude to it again. She had promised to love him for better or worse, and then she his wife had reproached him with his poverty after spending his earnings recklessly. It was dreadful, and the worst of it was John went on so quietly afterward just as if nothing had happened except that he stayed in town later and worked at night when she had gone to cry herself to sleep. A week of remorse nearly made Meg sick, and the discovery that John had countermanded the order for his new greatcoat reduced her to a state of despair which was pathetic to behold. He had simply said, in answer to her surprised inquiries as to the change,
1: "'I can't afford it, my dear,'
2: Meg said no more. But a few minutes after he found her in the hall with her face buried in the old greatcoat, crying as if her heart would break. They had a long talk that night, and Meg learned to love her husband better for his poverty, because it seemed to have made a man of him, given him the strength and courage to fight his own way, and taught him a tender patience with which to bear and comfort the natural longings and failures of those he loved. Next day she put her pride in her pocket, went to Sally, told her the truth, and asked her to buy the silk as a favor. The good-natured Mrs. Moffatt willingly did so, and had the delicacy not to make her a present of it immediately afterward then meg ordered home the greatcoat and when john arrived she put it on and asked him how he liked her new silk gown one can imagine what answer he made how he received his present and what a blissful state of things ensued john came home early meg gadded no more and that greatcoat was put on in the morning by a very happy husband and taken off at night by a most devoted little wife So the year rolled round, and at midsummer there came to Meg a new experience, the deepest and tenderest of a woman's life. Laurie came sneaking into the kitchen of the dovecote one Saturday, with an excited face, and was received with the clash of cymbals, for Hannah clapped her hands with a saucepan in one and the cover in the other. "'How's the little mamma? Where is everybody? Why didn't you tell me before I came home?' began Laurie in a loud whisper
5: happy as a queen the dear every soul of em is upstairs a worshipping
2: we didn't want no hurricanes round now you go into the parlour and i'll send em down to you with which somewhat involved reply hannah vanished chuckling ecstatically presently joe appeared proudly bearing a flannel bundle laid forth upon a large pillow joe's face was very sober but her eyes twinkled and there was an odd sound in her voice of repressed emotion of some sort "'Shut your eyes and hold out your arms,' she said invitingly. Laurie backed precipitately into a corner, and put his hands behind him with an imploring gesture.
6: "'No, thank you, I'd rather not. I shall drop it or
2: smash it, as sure as fate.' "'Then you shan't see your nevy,' said Joe decidedly, turning as if to go. "'I will, I will. Only you must be responsible for damages,' and obeying orders. Laurie heroically shut his eyes while something was put into his arms. A peal of laughter from Joe, Amy, Mrs. March, Hannah, and John caused him to open them the next minute, to find himself invested with two babies instead of one. No wonder they laughed, for the expression of his face was droll enough to convulse a Quaker, as he stood and stared wildly from the unconscious innocence to the hilarious spectators with such dismay that Joe sat down on the floor and screamed twins by Jupiter," was all he said for a minute. Then, turning to the women with an appealing look that was comically piteous, he added, "'Take em quick, somebody. I'm going to laugh, and I shall drop em.'" Joe rescued his babies and marched up and down, with one on each arm, as if already initiated into the mysteries of baby-tending, while Laurie laughed till the tears ran down his cheeks. "'It's the best joke of the season, isn't it? I wouldn't have told you, for I set my heart on surprising you, and I flatter myself I've done it said joe when she got her breath
6: i never was more staggered in my life isn't it fun are they boys what are you going to name them let's have another look
2: hold me up joe for upon my life it's one too many for me returned lory, regarding the infants with the air of a big benevolent newfoundland looking at a pair of infantile kittens
1: boy and girl aren't they beauties
2: said the proud papa, beaming upon the little red squirmers as if they were unfledged angels. Most remarkable children I ever saw! Which is which? And Laurie bent like a well-sweep to examine the prodigies. Amy put a blue ribbon on the boy and a pink on the girl, French fashion, so you can always tell. Besides, one has blue eyes and one brown. Kiss them, Uncle Teddy, said Wicked Joe.
6: I'm afraid they mightn't
2: like it. "'began Laurie with unusual timidity in such matters. "'Of course they will. They are used to it now. "'Do it this minute, sir,' commanded Joe, "'fearing he might propose a proxy. "'Lorry screwed up his face and obeyed with a gingerly peck "'at each little cheek that produced another laugh "'and made the babies squeal.
6: "'There, I knew they didn't like it. <laughs> "'That's the boy. See him kick? "'He hits out with his fists like a good one.' "'Now then, young Brooke, pitch into a man of your own size, will you?'
2: cried Laurie, delighted with a poke in the face from a tiny fist, flapping aimlessly about.
4: "'He's to be named John Lawrence and the girl Margaret, after mother and grandmother. We shall call her Daisy so as not to have two Megs, and I suppose the manny will be Jack, unless we find a better name,' said Amy, with aunt-like interest.
2: "'Name him John and call him Demi for short,' said Laurie. "'Daisy and Demi.' Just the thing. I knew Teddy would do it, cried Jo, clapping her hands. Teddy certainly had done it that time, for the babies were Daisy and Demi to the end of the chapter. End of chapter twenty chapter nine of Little Women. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter
4: 29 Calls Come, Joe. it's time. For what? You don't mean to say you've forgotten that you promised to make half a dozen calls with me today?
2: I've done a good many rash and foolish things in my life, but I don't think I ever was mad enough
4: to say I'd make six calls in one day when a single one upsets me for a week. Yes, you did it was a bargain between us i was to finish the crayon of beth for you and you were to go properly with me and return our neighbours visits if it was fair that was in the bond and i stand to the letter of my bond shylock there
2: is a pile of clouds in the east it's not fair and i don't go
4: now that's shirking it's a lovely day no prospect of rain and you pride yourself on keeping promises so be honourable come and do your duty and then be at peace for another six months
2: at that minute Joe was particularly absorbed in dressmaking, for she was Mantua to make a maker general to the family, and took especial credit to herself because she could use a needle as well as a pen. It was very provoking to be arrested in the act of a first trying on, and ordered out to make calls in her best array on a warm July day. She hated calls of the formal sort, and never made any till Amy compelled her with a bargain, bribe, or promise. In the present instance there was no escape. And having clashed her scissors rebelliously while protesting that she smelled thunder she gave in put away her work and taking up her hat and gloves with an air of resignation told amy the victim was ready
4: joe march you are perverse enough to provoke a saint you don't intend to make calls in that state i hope cried amy surveying her with amazement why not i'm neat and cool and
2: comfortable quite proper for a dusty walk on a warm day if people care more for my clothes than they do for me, I don't wish to see them. You can dress for both and be as elegant as you please. It pays for you to be fine. It doesn't for me, and furbelows only worry
0: me.
4: Oh, dear, sighed Amy. Now she's in a contrary fit, and will drive me distracted before I can get her properly ready. I'm sure it's no pleasure to me to go to-day, but it's a debt we owe society, and there's no one to pay it but you and me. "'I'll do anything for you, Joe, if you'll only dress yourself nicely and come and help me do the civil. You can talk so well, look so aristocratic in your best things, and behave so beautifully if you try that I'm proud of you. I'm afraid to go alone. Do come and take care of me.'
2: "'You're an artful little puss to flatter and wheedle your cross old sister in that way. The idea of my being aristocratic and well-bred and your being afraid to go anywhere alone—I don't know which is the most absurd.' well i'll go if i must and do my best you shall be commander of the expedition and i'll obey blindly will that satisfy you said joe with a sudden change from perversity to lamb-like submission
4: you're a perfect cherub now put on all your best things and i'll tell you how to behave at each place so that you will make a good impression i want people to like you and they would if you'd only try to be a little more agreeable do your hair the pretty way and put the pink rose in your bonnet—it's becoming—and you look too sober in your plain suit. Take your light gloves and the embroidered handkerchief. We'll stop at Meg's and borrow her white sunshade and then you can have my dove-colored one."
2: While Amy dressed she issued her orders and Joe obeyed them, not without entering her protest, however, for she sighed as she rustled into her new organdie, frowned darkly at herself as she tied her bonnet-strings in an irreproachable bow wrestled viciously with pins as she put on her collar, wrinkled up her features generally as she shook out the handkerchief, whose embroidery was as irritating to her nose as the present mission was to her feelings, and when she had squeezed her hands into tight gloves with three buttons and a tassel, as the last touch of elegance, she turned to Amy with an imbecile expression of countenance, saying meekly, "'I'm perfectly miserable, but if you consider me presentable, I die happy.' You're highly satisfactory. Turn slowly round and let me get a careful view. Joe revolved, and Amy gave a touch here and there, then fell back with her head on one side, observing graciously.
4: Yes, you'll do. Your head is all I could ask, for that white bonnet with the rose is quite ravishing. Hold back your shoulders and carry your hands easily, no matter if your gloves do pinch. There's one thing you can do well, Joe, that is, wear a shawl. I can't. "'But it's very nice to see you, and I'm so glad Aunt March gave you that lovely one. It's simple but handsome, and those folds over the arm are really artistic. Is the point of my mantle in the middle, and have I looped my dress evenly? I like to show my boots, for my feet are pretty, though my nose isn't.' "'You are a thing of
2: beauty and a joy forever,' said Jo, looking through her hand with the air of a connoisseur at the blue feather against the golden hair am i to drag my best dress
4: through the dust or loop it up please ma'am hold it up when you walk but drop it in the house the sweeping style suits you best and you must learn to trail your skirts gracefully you haven't half buttoned one cuff do it at once you'll never look finished if you are not careful about the little details for they make up the pleasing whole
2: joe sighed and proceeded to burst the buttons off her glove in doing up her cuff but at last both were ready and sailed away looking as pretty as pictures hannah said as she hung out of the upper window to watch them
4: now joe dear the chesters consider themselves very elegant people so i want you to put on your best deportment don't make any of your abrupt remarks or do anything odd will you just be calm cool and quiet that's safe and ladylike and you can easily do it for fifteen minutes said Amy as they approached the first place, having borrowed
2: the white parasol and been inspected by Meg, with a baby on each arm. Let me see. Calm, cool, and quiet. Yes, I think I can promise that. I've played the part of a prim young lady on the stage, and I'll try it off. My powers are great, as you shall see, so be easy in your mind, my child." Amy looked relieved, but Naughty Joe took her at her word for during the first call she sat with every limb gracefully composed, every fold correctly draped, calm as a summer sea, cool as a snow-bank, and as silent as the Sphinx. In vain Mrs. Chester alluded to her charming novel, and the Mrs. Chester introduced parties, picnics, the opera, and the fashions. Each and all were answered by a smile, a bow, and a demure, Yes or No, with the chill on, in vain amy telegraphed the word talk tried to draw her out and administered covert pokes with her foot joe sat as if blandly unconscious of it all with deportment like maude's face icily regular splendidly null what a haughty uninteresting creature that oldest miss march is was the unfortunately audible remark of one of the ladies as the door closed upon their guests joe laughed noiselessly all through the hall But Amy looked disgusted at the failure of her instructions, and very naturally laid the blame upon Joe.
4: "'How could you mistake me so? I merely meant you to be properly dignified and composed, and you made yourself a perfect stock and stone. Try to be sociable at the lambs, gossip as other girls do, and be interested in dress and flirtations and whatever nonsense comes up. They move in the best society, are valuable persons for us to know, and I wouldn't fail to make a good impression there for anything.' "'I'll be agreeable. I'll gossip and giggle and have horrors and raptures over any
2: trifle you like. I rather enjoy this. And now I'll imitate what is called a charming girl. I can do it, for I have May Chester as a model and I'll improve upon her. See if the lambs don't say. What a lively, nice creature that Joe March is!' Amy felt anxious, as well she might, for when Joe turned freakish there was no knowing where she would stop. Amy's face was a study when she saw her sister skim into the next drawing-room, kiss all the young ladies with effusion, beam graciously upon the young gentlemen, and join in the chat with a spirit which amazed the beholder. Amy was taken possession of by Mrs. Lamb, with whom she was a favorite, and forced to hear a long account of Lucretia's last attack, while three delightful young gentlemen hovered near, waiting for a pause when they might rush in and rescue her. So situated she was powerless to check Joe, who seemed possessed by a spirit of mischief, and talked away as volubly as the lady. A knot of heads gathered about her, and Amy strained her ears to hear what was going on, for broken sentences filled her with curiosity, and frequent peals of laughter made her wild to share the fun. One may imagine her suffering on overhearing fragments of this sort of conversation.
6: She rides splendidly.
2: Who taught her? no one. She used to practice mounting, holding the reins and sitting straight on an old saddle in a tree. Now she rides anything, for she doesn't know what fear is, and the stableman lets her have horses cheap because she trains them to carry ladies so well. She has such a passion for it. I often tell her if everything else fails she can be a horse-breaker and get her living so." At this awful speech Amy contained herself with difficulty for the impression was being given that she was rather a fast young lady which was her especial aversion but what could she do for the old lady was in the middle of her story and long before it was done joe was off again making more droll revelations and committing still more fearful blunders yes amy was in despair that day for all the good beasts were gone and of three left one was lame, one blind, and the other so bulky that you had to put dirt in his mouth before he would start. Nice animal for a pleasure-party, wasn't it?" (laughs) "'Which did she choose?' asked one of the laughing gentlemen, who enjoyed the subject. "'None of them. She heard of a young horse at the farmhouse over the river, and though a lady had never ridden him she resolved to try, because he was handsome and spirited. Her struggles were really pathetic there was no one to bring the horse to the saddle so she took the saddle to the horse my dear creature she actually rode it over the river put it on her head and marched up to the barn to the utter amazement of the old man
1: did she ride the horse
2: of course she did and had a capital time i expected to see her brought home in fragments but she managed him perfectly and was the life of the party
0: well
8: i call that plucky
2: and young mr lamb turned an approving glance upon amy wondering what his mother could be saying to make the girl look so red and uncomfortable. She was still redder and more uncomfortable a moment after, when a sudden turn in the conversation introduced the subject of dress. One of the young ladies asked Joe where she got the pretty drab hat she wore to the picnic, and stupid Joe, instead of mentioning the place where it was bought two years ago, must needs answer with unnecessary frankness. "'Oh, Amy painted it. You can't buy those soft shades, so we paint ours any colour we like.' "'It's a great comfort to have an artistic sister.'
8: "'Isn't that an original idea?'
2: cried Miss Lamb, who found Joe great fun. "'That's nothing compared to some of her brilliant performances. There's nothing the child can't do. Why, she wanted a pair of blue boots for Sally's party, so she just painted her soiled white ones the loveliest shade of sky-blue you ever saw, and they looked exactly like satin,' added Joe, with an air of pride in her sister's accomplishments that exasperated Amy. Till she felt that it would be a relief to throw her card-case at her
4: we read a story of yours the other
2: day and enjoyed it very much observed the elder miss lamb wishing to compliment the literary lady who did not look the character just then it must be confessed any mention of her works always had a bad effect upon joe who either grew rigid and looked offended or changed the subject with a brusque remark as now sorry you could find nothing better to read I write that rubbish because it sells and ordinary people like it. Are you going to New York this winter?" As Miss Lamb had enjoyed the story this speech was not exactly grateful or complimentary. The minute it was made Joe saw her mistake, but fearing to make the matter worse, suddenly remembered that it was for her to make the first move toward departure, and did so with an abruptness that left three people with half-finished sentences in their mouths. "'Amy, we must go. Good-bye, dear. Do come and see us. We are pining for a visit. I don't dare to ask you, Mr. Lamb, but if you should come I don't think I shall have the heart to send you away." Joe said this with such a droll imitation of May Chester's gushing style that Amy got out of the room as rapidly as possible, feeling a strong desire to laugh and cry at the same time. "'Didn't I do well?' asked Joe, with a satisfied air as they
4: walked away. "'Nothing could have been worse was amy's crushing reply what possessed you to tell those stories about my saddle and the hats and boots and all the rest of it why it's funny and amuses people they know we are poor so
2: it's no use pretending that we have five grooms buy three or four hats a season and have things as easy and fine as they do
4: you needn't go and tell them all our little shifts and expose our poverty in that perfectly unnecessary way you haven't a bit of proper pride and never will learn when to hold your tongue and when to speak said amy
2: despairingly poor joe looked abashed and silently chafed the end of her nose with the stiff handkerchief as if performing a penance for her misdemeanors how shall i behave here she asked as they approached the third mansion just as you please i wash my hands of you was amy's short answer then i'll enjoy myself the boys are at home and will have a comfortable time goodness knows I need a little change, for elegance has a bad effect upon my constitution," returned Jo gruffly, being disturbed by her failure to suit. An enthusiastic welcome from three big boys and several pretty children speedily soothed her ruffled feelings, and leaving Amy to entertain the hostess and Mr. Tudor, who happened to be calling likewise, Jo devoted herself to the young folks and found the change refreshing. She listened to college stories with deep interest caressed pointers and poodles without a murmur, agreed heartily that Tom Brown was a brick, regardless of the improper form of praise, and when one lad proposed a visit to his turtle-tank she went with an alacrity which caused Mamma to smile upon her, as that motherly lady settled the cap which was left in a ruinous condition by filial hugs, bear-like but affectionate, and dearer to her than the most faultless coiffeur from the hands of an inspired Frenchwoman. Leaving her sister to her own devices— amy proceeded to enjoy herself to her heart's content mr tudor's uncle had married an english lady who was third cousin to a living lord and amy regarded the whole family with great respect for in spite of her american birth and breeding she possessed that reverence for titles which haunts the best of us that unacknowledged loyalty to the early faith in kings which set the most democratic nation under the sun in ferment at the coming of a royal yellow-haired laddie some years ago, and which still has something to do with the love the young country bears the old, like that of a big son for an imperious little mother, who held him while she could and let him go with a farewell scolding when he rebelled. But even the satisfaction of talking with a distant connection of the British nobility did not render Amy forgetful of time and when the proper number of minutes had passed she reluctantly tore herself from this aristocratic society and looked about for Joe, fervently hoping that her incorrigible sister would not be found in any position which should bring disgrace upon the name of March. It might have been worse, but Amy considered it bad. For Joe sat on the grass, with an encampment of boys about her, and a dirty-footed dog reposing on the skirt of her state and festival dress. As she related one of Lori's pranks to her admiring audience. One small child was poking turtles with Amy's cherished parasol, a second was eating gingerbread over Joe's best bonnet, and a third playing ball with her gloves. But all were enjoying themselves, and when Joe collected her damaged property to go, her escort accompanied her, begging her to come again. It was such fun to hear
8: about Lori's larks.
2: Capital boys, aren't they? I feel quite young and brisk again after that. Said Joe, strolling along with her hands behind her, partly from habit, partly to conceal the bespattered parasol.
4: Why do you always avoid Mr. Tudor? asked Amy, wisely refraining
2: from any comment upon Joe's dilapidated appearance. Don't like him; he puts on airs, snubs his sisters, worries his father, and doesn't speak respectfully of his mother. Lorry says he is fast, and I don't consider him a desirable acquaintance, so
4: I let him alone. You might treat him civilly at least you gave him a cool nod and just now you bowed and smiled in the politest way to tommy chamberlain whose father keeps a grocery store if you had just reversed the nod and the bow it would have been right said amy reprovingly no it wouldn't returned joe
2: i neither like respect nor admire tudor though his grandfather's uncle's nephew's niece was a third cousin to a lord tommy is poor and bashful and good and very clever i think well of him and i like to show that i do for he is a gentleman in spite of the brown paper parcels. "'It's no use trying to argue with you,' began Amy. "'Not the least, my dear,' interrupted Joe. "'So let us look amiable and drop a card here, as the Kings are evidently out, for which I'm deeply grateful.' The family card-case having done its duty, the girls walked on, and Joe uttered another thanksgiving on reaching the fifth house and being told that the young ladies were engaged now let us go home and never mind aunt march today. we can run down there any time and it's really a pity to trail through the dust in our best bibs and tuckers when we are tired
4: and cross speak for yourself if you please aunt march likes to have us pay her the compliment of coming in style and making a formal call it's a little thing to do but it gives her pleasure and i don't believe it will hurt your things half so much as letting dirty dogs and clumping boys spoil them Stoop down and let me take the crumbs off of your bonnet. What a good girl you are, Amy," said Joe, with a repentant glance
2: from her own damaged costume to that of her sister, which was fresh and spotless still. I wish it was as easy for me to do little things to please people as it is for you. I think of them, but it takes too much time to do them, so I wait for a chance to confer a great favor and let the small ones slip. But they tell best in the end, I fancy." Amy smiled, and was mollified at once, saying with a maternal air,
4: Women should learn to be agreeable, particularly poor ones, for they have no other way of repaying the kindnesses they receive. If you'd remember that and practice it, you'd be better liked than I am, because there is more of you. I'm a crotchety old thing, and always shall be,
2: but I'm willing to own that you are right. Only it's easier for me to risk my life for a person than to be pleasant to him when I don't feel like it. It's a great misfortune to have such strong likes and
4: dislikes, isn't it? It's a greater not to be able to hide them. I don't mind saying that I don't approve of Tudor any more than you do, but I'm not called upon to tell him so, neither are you, and there is no use in making yourself disagreeable because he is. But I think girls
2: ought to show when they disapprove of young men, and how can they do it except by their manners? Preaching does not do any good, as I know to my sorrow, since I have had Teddy to manage, but there are many little
4: ways in which I can influence him without a word, and I say we ought to do it to others if we can. "'Teddy is a remarkable boy, and can't be taken as a sample of other boys,' said
2: Amy, in a tone of solemn conviction, which would have convulsed the remarkable boy
4: if he had heard it. "'If we were belles, or women of wealth and position, we might do something, perhaps. But for us to frown at one set of young gentlemen because we don't approve of them, and smile upon another set because we do, wouldn't have a particle of effect, and we should only be considered odd and puritanical.' "'So we are to countenance things and people
2: which we detest, merely because we are not belles and millionaires, are we? That's a nice sort of
4: morality.' "'I can't argue about it. I only know that it's the way of the world, and people who set themselves against it only get laughed at for their pains. I don't like reformers, and I hope you never try to be one.' "'I do like them, and I shall
2: be one if I can, for in spite of the laughing the world would never get on without them. We can't agree about that.' for you belong to the old set, and I to the new. You will get on the best, but I shall have the liveliest time of it. I should rather enjoy the brickbats and hooting, I think."
4: "'Well, compose yourself now, and don't worry aunt with your new ideas.'
2: "'I'll try not to. But I'm always possessed to burst out with some particularly blunt speech or revolutionary sentiment before her. It's my doom, and I can't help it.'" They found Aunt Carol with the old lady, both absorbed in some very interesting subject, but they dropped it as soon as the girls came in, with a conscious look which betrayed that they had been talking about their nieces. Joe was not in a good humour, and the perverse fit returned. But Amy, who had virtuously done her duty, kept her temper and pleased everybody, was in a most angelic frame of mind. This amiable spirit was felt at once, and both aunts my-deared her affectionately, looking what they afterward said emphatically.
5: "'That child improves every day.' "'Are you going to help about the fair, dear?'
2: asked Mrs. Carroll, as Amy sat down beside her with the confiding air elderly people like so well in the young. "'Yes, aunt.
4: Mrs. Chester asked me if I would, and I offered to tend a table as I have nothing but my time to give.'
2: "'I'm not,' put in Joe decidedly. "'I hate to be patronized, and the Chesters think it's a great favour to allow us to help with their highly connected fair. I wonder you
4: consented, Amy. They only want you to work.' "'I am willing to work.' It's for the freedmen as well as the Chesters, and I think it very kind of them to let me share the labour and the fun. Patronage does not trouble me when it is well meant.
5: Quite right and proper. I like your grateful spirit, my dear. It's a pleasure to help people who appreciate our efforts. Some do not, and that is trying. Observed
2: Aunt March, looking over her spectacles at Joe, who sat apart, rocking herself with a somewhat morose expression. If Joe had only known what a great happiness was wavering in the balance for one of them she would have turned dove-like in a minute. But unfortunately we don't have windows in our breasts and cannot see what goes on in the minds of our friends. Better for us that we cannot as a general thing, but now and then it would be such a comfort, such a saving of time and temper. By her next speech Jo deprived herself of several years of pleasure and received a timely lesson in the art of holding her tongue. "'I don't like favors.' They oppress and make me feel like a slave. I'd rather do everything for myself and be perfectly independent. (coughs) Coughed Aunt Carol softly, with a look at Aunt March.
5: I told you so, said
2: Aunt March with a decided nod to Aunt Carol. Mercifully unconscious of what she had done, Jo sat with her nose in the air, and a revolutionary aspect which was anything but inviting. Do you speak French, dear? asked Mrs. Carol, laying a hand on Amy's.
4: Pretty well, thanks to Aunt March, who lets Esther talk to me as often as I like. Replied Amy with a grateful look, which caused the old lady to smile
2: affably.
5: How are you about languages?
2: asked Mrs. Carroll of Joe. Don't know a word. I'm very stupid about studying anything. Can't bear French. It's such a slippery, silly sort of language, was the brusque reply. Another look passed between the ladies, and Aunt March said to Amy,
8: You're quite strong
5: and well now, dear, I believe eyes don't trouble you any more do they
4: not at all thank you ma'am i'm very well and mean to do great things next winter so that i may be ready for rome whenever that joyful time arrives
5: good girl you deserve to go
4: and i'm sure you will some day
2: said aunt march with an approving pat on the head as amy picked up her ball for her
4: cross draw the latch Sit by the fire and spin
2: squalled polly bending down from his perch on the back of her chair to peep into joe's face with such a comical air of impertinent inquiry that it was impossible to help laughing.
5: "'Most observing bird,'
2: said the old lady. "'Come and take a walk, dear,' cried Polly, hopping toward the china closet with a look suggestive of a lump of sugar. Thank you I will. Come, Amy." And Joe brought the visit to an end, feeling more strongly than ever that calls did have a bad effect upon her constitution. She shook hands in a gentlemanly manner, but Amy kissed both the aunts, and the girls departed, leaving behind them the impression of shadow and sunshine, which impression caused Aunt March to say as they vanished. "'You'd better do it, Mary. I'll supply the money,' and Aunt Carol to reply decidedly.
5: "'I certainly will, if her father and mother consent.'"
2: End of chapter 29 Chapter 30 of Little Women This LibriVox recording was in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter Thirty Consequences. Mrs. Chester's fair was so very elegant and select that it was considered a great honor by the young ladies of the neighborhood to be invited to take a table, and every one was much interested in the matter. Amy was asked, but Joe was not which was fortunate for all parties, as her elbows were decidedly akimbo at this period of her life and it took a good many hard knocks to teach her how to get on easily. The haughty, uninteresting creature was let severely alone, but Amy's talent and taste were duly complimented by the offer of the art-table, and she exerted herself to prepare and secure appropriate and valuable contributions to it. Everything went on smoothly till the day before the fair opened, then there occurred one of the little skirmishes which it is almost impossible to avoid when some five-and-twenty women, old and young, with all their private piques and prejudices, try to work together. Maychester was rather jealous of Amy, because the latter was a greater favorite than herself, and just at this time several trifling circumstances occurred to increase the feeling. Amy's dainty pen-and-ink work entirely eclipsed May's painted vases that was one thorn. Then the all-conquering Tudor had danced four times with Amy at a late party and only once with May. That was thorn number two. But the chief grievance that rankled in her soul and gave an excuse for her unfriendly conduct was a rumor which some obliging gossip had whispered to her that the March girls had made fun of her at the lambs. All the blame of this should have fallen upon Joe, for her naughty imitation had been too lifelike to escape detection, and the frolicsome lambs had permitted the joke to escape. No hint of this had reached the culprits, however, and Amy's dismay can be imagined, when, the very evening before the fair, as she was putting the last touches to her pretty table, Mrs. Chester, who of course resented the supposed ridicule of her daughter, said in a bland tone, but with a cold look,
5: i find dear that there is some feeling among the young ladies about my giving this table to any one but my girls as this is the most prominent and some say the most attractive table of all and they are the chief getters up of the fair it is thought best for them to take this place i'm sorry but i know you are too sincerely interested in the cause to mind a little personal disappointment and you shall have another table if you like
2: Mrs. Chester fancied beforehand that it would be easy to deliver this little speech, but when the time came she found it rather difficult to utter it naturally, with Amy's unsuspicious eyes looking straight at her full of surprise and trouble. Amy felt that there was something behind this, but could not guess what, and said quietly, feeling hurt and showing that she did,
4: "'Perhaps you'd rather I took no table at all?' "'No, my dear, don't have any ill-feeling, I beg.'
5: it's merely a matter of expediency you see my girls will naturally take the lead and this table is considered their proper place i think it is very appropriate to you and feel very grateful for your efforts to make it so pretty but we must give up our private wishes of course and i will see that you have a good place elsewhere wouldn't you like the flower-table the little girls undertook it but they are discouraged You could make a charming thing of it, and the flower-table is always attractive, you know.
2: Especially to gentlemen, added May, with a look which enlightened Amy as to one cause of her sudden fall from favour. She coloured angrily, but took no other notice of that girlish sarcasm, and answered with unexpected amiability.
4: It shall be as you please, Mrs. Chester. I'll give up my place here at once and attend to the flowers if you like. You can put your own things on
2: your own table if you prefer began may feeling a little conscience-stricken as she looked at the pretty racks the painted shells and quaint illuminations amy had so carefully made and so gracefully arranged she meant it kindly but amy mistook her meaning and said quickly
4: oh certainly if they're in your way
2: and sweeping her contributions into her apron pell-mell she walked off feeling that herself and her works of art had been insulted past forgiveness
8: now she's mad oh dear I wish
2: I hadn't asked you to speak, Mama, said May, looking disconsolately at the empty spaces on her table.
5: Girls' quarrels are soon over,
2: returned her mother, feeling a trifle ashamed of her own part in this one, as well she might. The little girls hailed Amy and her treasures with delight, which cordial reception somewhat soothed her perturbed spirit, and she fell to work, determined to succeed florally if she could not artistically. But everything seemed against her. It was late and she was tired. Every one was too busy with their own affairs to help her, and the little girls were only hindrances, for the dears fussed and chattered like so many magpies, making a great deal of confusion in their artless efforts to preserve the most perfect order. The evergreen arch wouldn't stay firm after she got it up, but wiggled and threatened to tumble down on her head when the hanging baskets were filled. Her best tile got a splash of water, which left a sepia tear on the cupid's cheek. She bruised her hands with hammering, and got cold working in a draught, which last affliction filled her with apprehensions for the morrow. Any girl reader who has suffered like afflictions will sympathize with poor Amy and wish her well through her task. There was great indignation at home when she told her story that evening. Her mother said it was a shame, but told her she had done right. Beth declared she wouldn't go to the fair at all and joe demanded why she didn't take all her pretty things and leave those mean people to get on without her
4: because they are mean is no reason why i should be i hate such things and though i think i've a right to be hurt i don't intend to show it they will feel that more than angry speeches or huffy actions won't they marmee
7: that's the right spirit my dear a kiss for a blow is always best though it's not very easy to give it sometimes said her mother
2: with the air of one who had learned the difference between preaching and practicing. In spite of various very natural temptations to resent and retaliate, Amy adhered to her resolution all the next day, bent on conquering her enemy by kindness. She began well, thanks to a silent reminder that came to her unexpectedly but most opportunely. As she arranged her table that morning, while the little girls were in the ante-room filling the baskets, she took up her pet production a little book, the antique cover of which her father had found among his treasures, and in which, on leaves of vellum, she had beautifully illuminated different texts. As she turned the pages, rich and dainty devices, with very pardonable pride, her eye fell upon one verse that made her stop and think. Framed in a brilliant scrollwork of scarlet, blue, and gold, with little spirits of good will helping one another up and down among the thorns and flowers, were the words— thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I ought, but I don't, thought Amy, as her eye went from the bright page to May's discontented face behind the big vases, that could not hide the vacancies her pretty work had once filled. Amy stood a minute, turning the leaves in her hand, reading on each some sweet rebuke for all heart-burnings and uncharitableness of spirit. Many wise and true sermons are preached us every day by unconscious ministers in street, school, office, or home. Even a fair table may become a pulpit, if it can offer the good and helpful words which are never out of season. Amy's conscience preached her a little sermon from that text then and there, and she did what many of us do not always do—took the sermon to heart, and straightway put it in practice. A group of girls were standing about May's table, admiring the pretty things and talking over the change of saleswomen they dropped their voices but amy knew they were speaking of her hearing one side of the story and judging accordingly it was not pleasant but a better spirit had come over her and presently a chance offered for proving it she heard may say sorrowfully
8: it's too bad for there's no time to make other things and i don't want to fill up
4: with odds and ends the table was just complete then now it's
2: spoiled i dare say she'd put them back if you asked her suggested someone. how could i after all the fuss began may but she did not finish
4: for amy's voice came across the hall saying pleasantly you may have them and welcome without asking if you want them i was just thinking i'd offer to put them back for they belong to your table rather than mine here they are please take them and forgive me if i was hasty in carrying them away last night as she spoke amy returned her contribution
2: with a nod and a smile and hurried away again feeling that it was easier to do a friendly thing than it was to stay and be thanked for it
8: now i call
2: that lovely of her don't you cried one girl may's answer was inaudible but another young lady whose temper was evidently a little soured by making lemonade added with a disagreeable laugh very lovely for
4: she knew she wouldn't sell them at her
8: own table
2: Now that was hard. When we make little sacrifices we like to have them appreciated at least, and for a minute Amy was sorry she had done it, feeling that virtue was not always its own reward. But it is, as she presently discovered, for her spirits began to rise, and her table to blossom under her skilful hands, the girls were very kind, and that one little act seemed to have cleared the atmosphere amazingly. It was a very long day and a hard one for Amy, as she sat behind her table, often quite alone, for the little girls deserted very soon. Few cared to buy flowers in summer, and her bouquets began to droop long before night. The art-table was the most attractive in the room. There was a crowd about it all day long, and the tenders were constantly flying to and fro with important faces and rattling money-boxes. Amy often looked wistfully across, longing to be there, where she felt at home and happy, instead of in a corner with nothing to do. It might seem no hardship to some of us, but to a pretty, blithe young girl it was not only tedious but very trying, and the thought of Laurie and his friends made it a real martyrdom. She did not go home till night, and then she looked so pale and quiet that they knew the day had been a hard one, though she made no complaint, and did not even tell what she had done. Her mother gave her an extra cordial cup of tea. Beth helped her dress, and made a charming little wreath for her hair while joe astonished her family by getting herself up with unusual care and hinting darkly that the tables were about to be turned
4: don't do anything rude pray joe i won't have any fuss made so let it all pass and behave yourself begged
2: amy as she departed early hoping to find a reinforcement of flowers to refresh her poor little table i merely intend to make myself entrancingly agreeable to every one i know and to keep them in your corner as long as possible teddy and his boys will lend a hand "'And we'll have a good time yet,' returned Joe, leaning over the gate to watch for Lorry. Presently the familiar tramp was heard in the dusk, and she ran out to meet him. "'Is that my boy?'
6: "'As sure as this is my girl,'
2: and Lorry tucked her hand under his arm with the air of a man whose every wish was gratified. "'Oh, Teddy, such doings!' And Joe told Amy's wrongs with sisterly zeal.
6: "'A flock of our fellows are going to drive over by-and-by, and and I'll be hanged if I don't make them buy every flower she's got and camp down before her table afterward,'
2: said Laurie, espousing her cause with warmth. "'The flowers are not at all nice, Amy says, and the fresh ones may not arrive in time. I don't wish to be unjust or suspicious, but I shouldn't wonder if they never came at all. When people do one mean thing they are very likely to do another,' observed Joe in a disgusted tone.
6: "'Didn't Hayes give you the best out of our gardens? I told him to.'
2: "'I didn't know that. He forgot, I suppose. And as your grandpa was poorly, I didn't like to worry him by asking, though I did want some.'
6: "'Now, Joe, how could you think there was any need of asking? They're just
2: as much yours as mine. Don't we always go halves in everything?' began Laurie, in the tone that always made Joe turn thorny. "'Gracious, I hope not. Half of some of your things wouldn't suit me at all, but we mustn't stand philandering here. I've got to help Amy. So you go and make yourself splendid, and if you'll be so very kind as to let Hayes take a few nice flowers up to the hall, I'll bless you forever. Couldn't you do it now? asked Laurie, so suggestively that Joe shut the gate in his face with inhospitable haste and called through the bars. Go away, Teddy, I'm busy. Thanks to the conspirators, the tables were turned that night, for Hayes sent up a wilderness of flowers, with a loverly basket arranged in his best manner for a centerpiece. Then the March family turned out en masse, and Joe exerted herself to some purpose, for people not only came, but stayed, laughing at her nonsense, admiring Amy's taste, and apparently enjoying themselves very much. Laurie and his friends gallantly threw themselves into the breach, bought up the bouquets, encamped before the table, and made that corner the liveliest spot in the room. Amy was in her element now, and out of gratitude, if nothing more, was as sprightly and gracious as possible, coming to the conclusion, about that time, that virtue was its own reward, after all. Jo behaved herself with exemplary propriety, and when Amy was happily surrounded by her guard of honor, Jo circulated about the hall, picking up various bits of gossip which enlightened her upon the subject of the Chester change of base. She reproached herself for her share of the ill-feeling, and resolved to exonerate Amy as soon as possible. She also discovered what Amy had done about the things in the morning, and considered her a model of magnanimity. As she passed the art-table, she glanced over it for her sister's things, but saw no sign of them. "'Tucked away out of sight, I dare say,' thought Jo, who could forgive her own wrongs, but hotly resented any insult offered her family.
4: "'Good
2: evening, Miss Jo. How does Amy get on?' asked May, with a conciliatory air, for she wanted to show that she could also be generous. "'She has sold everything that was worth selling, and now she is enjoying herself. The flower-table is always attractive, you know—especially to gentlemen.' Joe couldn't resist giving that little slap, but May took it so meekly she regretted it a minute after, and fell to praising the great vases, which still remained unsold. "'Is Amy's illumination anywhere about? I took a fancy to buy that for father,' said Joe." very anxious to learn the fate of her sister's work. "'Everything of Amy's sold long ago. I took care that the right people saw them, and they made a nice little sum of money for us,' returned May, who had overcome sundry small temptations, as well as Amy had, that day. Much gratified, Joe rushed back to tell the good news, and Amy looked both touched and surprised by the report of May's word and manner.
4: "'Now, gentlemen, I want you to go and do your duty by the other tables as generously as you have by mine, especially the art table," she said, ordering out Teddy's own, as the girls called the college
2: friends. Charge, Chester, charge, is the motto for that table, but do your duty like men and you'll get your money's worth of art in every sense of the word," said the irrepressible Joe, as the devoted phalanx prepared to take the field.
8: To
6: hear is to obey, but marches fairer far than may
2: said little Parker, making a frantic effort to be both witty and tender, and getting promptly quenched by Lorry, who said, "'Very well, my son, for a small boy,' and walked him off, with a paternal pat on the head. "'By the vases,' whispered Amy to Lorry, as a final heaping of coals of fire on her enemy's head. To May's great delight, Mr. Lawrence not only bought the vases, but pervaded the hall with one under each arm. The other gentlemen speculated with equal rashness in all sorts of frail trifles, and wandered helplessly about afterwards, burdened with wax-flowers, painted fans, filigree portfolios, and other useful and appropriate purchases. Aunt Carol was there, heard the story, looked pleased, and said something to Mrs. March in a corner, which made the latter lady beam with satisfaction, and watch Amy with a face full of mingled pride and anxiety though she did not betray the cause of her pleasure till several days later. The fair was pronounced a success, and when May bade Amy good-night she did not gush as usual, but gave her an affectionate kiss and a look which said, Forgive and forget. That satisfied Amy, and when she got home she found the vases paraded on the parlour chimney-piece with a great bouquet in each. The reward of merit for a magnanimous march, as Laurie announced with a flourish. "'You've a deal more principle and generosity and nobleness of character than I ever gave you credit for, Amy. You've behaved sweetly, and I respect you with all my heart,' said Joe warmly, as they brushed their hair together late that night.
8: "'Yes, we all do, and love her for being so ready to forgive. It must have been dreadfully hard, after working so long, and setting your heart on selling your own pretty things. I don't believe I could have done it as kindly as you did,'
4: added Beth from her pillow.
8: Why, girls, you needn't
4: praise me so. I only did as I'd be done by. You laugh at me when I say I want to be a lady, but I mean a true gentlewoman in mind and manners, and I try to do it as far as I know how. I can't explain exactly, but I want to be above the little meannesses and follies and faults that spoil so many women. I'm far from it now, but I do my best, and I hope in time to be what mother is." Amy spoke earnestly. And Joe said, with a cordial hug,
2: I understand now what you mean, and I'll never laugh at you again. You are getting on faster than you think, and I'll take lessons of you in true politeness, for you've learned the secret, I believe. Try away, dearie, you'll get your reward some day, and no one will be more delighted than I shall. A week later Amy did get her reward, and poor Joe found it hard to be delighted. A letter came from Aunt Carol. And Mrs. March's face was illuminated to such a degree when she read it that Joe and Beth, who were with her, demanded what the glad tidings were.
7: "'Aunt Carol is going abroad next month and wants—'
2: "'Me to go with her!' burst in Joe, flying out of her chair in an uncontrollable rapture.
7: "'No, dear, not you. It's Amy.'
4: "'Oh,
2: mother! She's too young. It's my turn first. I've wanted it so long.
7: It would do me so much good and be so altogether splendid—' "'I must go.' "'I'm afraid it's impossible, Joe. Aunt says Amy, decidedly, and it is not for us to dictate when she offers such a favor.
2: "'It's always so. Amy has all the fun and I have all the work. It isn't fair. Oh, it isn't fair!' cried Joe passionately.
7: "'I'm afraid it's partly your own fault, dear. When Aunt spoke to me the other day, she regretted your blunt manners and too independent spirit, and here she writes—' as if quoting something you had said i planned at first to ask joe but as favours burden her and she hates french i think i won't venture to invite her amy is more docile will make a good companion for flo and receive gratefully any help the trip may give her
2: oh my tongue my abominable tongue why can't i learn to keep it quiet groaned joe remembering words which had been her undoing when she had heard the explanation of the quoted phrases mrs march said sorrowfully
7: i wish you could have gone but there is no hope of it this time so try to bear it cheerfully and don't sadden amy's pleasure by reproaches or regrets
2: i'll try said joe winking hard as she knelt down to pick up the basket she had joyfully upset i'll take a leaf out of her book and try not only to seem glad but to be so and not grudge her one minute of happiness But it won't be easy, for it is a dreadful disappointment." And poor Jo bedewed the little fat pincushion she held with several very bitter tears.
8: "'Jo, dear, I'm very selfish, but I couldn't spare you, and I'm glad you're not going quite yet,'
2: whispered Beth, embracing her, basket and all, with such a clinging touch and loving face that Jo felt comforted in spite of the sharp regret that made her want to box her own ears and humbly beg Aunt Carol to burden her with this favor and see how gratefully she would bear it. By the time Amy came in Jo was able to take her part in the family jubilation, not quite as heartily as usual, perhaps, but without repinings at Amy's good fortune. The young lady herself received the news as tidings of great joy, went about in a solemn sort of rapture and began to sort her colors and pack her pencils that evening, leaving such trifles as clothes, money, and passports to those less absorbed in visions of art than herself. "'It isn't a mere pleasure trip to me, girls,' she said
4: impressively as she scraped her best palette. "'It will decide my career. For if I have any genius I shall find it out in Rome, and will do something to prove it.' "'Suppose you haven't?'
2: said Joe, sewing away with red eyes at the new collars which were to be handed over to Amy.
4: "'Then I shall come home and teach drawing for my living,'
2: replied the aspirant for fame with philosophic composure. But she made a wry face at the prospect, and scratched away at her palette as if bent on vigorous measures before she gave up her hopes. "'No, you won't. You hate hard work. And you'll marry some rich man, and come home to sit in the lap of luxury all your days,' said Joe."
4: Your predictions sometimes come to pass, but I don't believe that one will. I'm sure I wish it would, for if I can't be an artist myself I should like to be able to help those who are,"
2: said Amy, smiling as if the part of Lady Bountiful would suit her better than that of a poor drawing teacher. h hmm, said Joe, with a sigh. "'If you wish for it, you'll have it, for your wishes are always granted. Mine never.'
4: "'Would you like to go?'
2: asked Amy, thoughtfully patting her nose with her knife rather
4: well in a year or two i'll send for you and we'll dig in the forum for relics and carry out all the plans we've made so many times
2: thank you i'll remind you of your promise when that joyful day comes if it ever does returned joe accepting the vague but magnificent offer as gratefully as she could there was not much time for preparation and the house was in a ferment till amy was off joe bore up very well till the last flutter of blue ribbon vanished when she retired to her refuge, the garret, and cried till she couldn't cry any more. Amy likewise bore up stoutly till the steamer sailed. Then, just as the gangway was about to be withdrawn, it suddenly came over her that a whole ocean was soon to roll between her and those who loved her best, and she clung to Laurie, the last
4: lingerer, saying with a sob, "'Oh, take care of them for me, and if anything should happen—' "'I will, dear, I will, and if anything happens—' I'll come
2: and comfort you," whispered Laurie, little dreaming that he would be called upon to keep his word. So Amy sailed away to find the old world, which is always new and beautiful to young eyes, while her father and friend watched her from the shore, fervently hoping that none but gentle fortunes would befall the happy-hearted girl, who waved her hand to them till they could see nothing but the summer sunshine dazzling on the sea. End of chapter 30